at every single link in the chain of events leading up to Lumumba's death, there's an American role. In terms of Kasavubu, the president firing Lumumba, Americans push for that. Mobutu taking power in a coup, Americans push for that. Mobutu being supported while he was in power and a peace deal to bring Lumumba back to power being opposed, Americans were behind that. Capture of Lumumba, an American hand, etc. So broader context here is the CIA had its fingers in so much of the events and so many of the events that, that led to Lumumba's death. What's up, guys? Today, I sit down with Stuart A. Reed, who is the executive editor at Foreign Affairs Magazine and the author of Lumumba Plot, which is what we'll be getting into today. The story, the rise and the fall of Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister of the Congo. And I knew almost nothing about this story before I reached out to Stuart. I, you know, like I always do, I comb around for different people and topics to do podcast episodes on. And I saw this book on Amazon recommended to me. And immediately I was drawn in by the the imagery on the cover, the the subtitle of the book. The full title of the book is The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. And I thought, damn, I need to reach out to the guy whose name is on the cover. And that is Stuart A. Reed. And this whole conversation, there are a ton of elements that go into it. There's the, the secret scheming of the CIA. There's the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. There is the anti-communist lens with which the United States operated on for decades. And that affected not only the decision making of the United States, but global politics as a whole. And I think the most important thing to remember during this episode is that these aren't just stories about events. These are people. These are human beings that went through history. And I am guilty of forgetting that sometimes. I think I even mentioned that in the episode where it's like a lot of times you'll read things from history and you forget that these were actually people. And Stuart did a great job in the book and in this conversation, humanizing the events that transpired throughout the Lumumba plot by always going back to the people, by going back to the emotions, by putting himself in the perspective of what he thought would be going on based on the research, based on the evidence, based on all of the sources that he looked into. And it was a lot. So again, this is a hell of an episode. There, there, there's a lot of different moving parts. I hope you enjoyed it. For me, it all came together at the end. So I hope you stick around. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Stuart A. Reed. Stuart Reed, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. Of course. Um, so the, the first thing I have to ask you is what drew you to the story of Patrice Lumumba, because we're going to dive into all the details. And there's so many different plots and, and schemes out there, especially involving the CIA. So in a way, they make it difficult to choose. So so how did they how did you become drawn to this plot in particular? You know, it started with being interested in, in Congo, the country. I went there in, in 2014 to write an article that was focused on current events there. And that sent me down a rabbit hole of reading about the country's history. And the more I read, the more I became captivated by this, this brief moment 
in the Cold War in 1960 and 1961, when Congo was literally front page news of the New York Times, you know, almost every day during during the crisis. And yet, I had barely heard of this episode, um, and it later really became overshadowed by the so many other Cold War crises. Um, and so then, you know, the more I read, the more I realized there was this intriguing CIA angle to it, um, but also these really great characters. You know, you have Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, um, Mobutu, you know, the, the sort of minor character who would then become a major character in, in Congo's history, Doug Hammarskjöld, the secretary general of the UN who died in a mysterious plane crash. And then above all, yeah. Lumumba himself, who, um, you know, is this... Uh, hero to many Congolese, but also was you know, confounding in many ways. Um, and, you know, an impressive man who rose from, from humble circumstances uh, and and led the Congo and then was ultimately um, assassinated in, in 1961. So the, the characters drew me in, as did the sort of fact that the story had been such a big deal at the time, but then largely forgotten afterward. Did you go to the Congo back in 2014 with this story in mind in particular, or was it just you were digging through things you, by happenstance, you you ran into this story? No, I didn't know about the story at all when I went there first. So in, in 2014, I was writing a, a magazine profile of um, a man named Russ Feingold, who, as you may know, was a U.S. senator who then mm. lost his Senate seat to a to a Tea Partier in 2010, and then somewhat improbably became the Obama administration's envoy to the Great Lakes region of Africa in Central Africa. And as part of that job, his main sort of task was dealing um, with uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and trying to sort of end various. Uh, and the civil war in the country's east. And so I was going there as a journalist writing about sort of what's this politician up to in the middle of Africa. And, and you know, then I went there, I saw the place for myself, you know, saw the um, U.S. ambassador's residence. This was in 2014. It was the same one that um, was used in 1960 when the events in my book take place. So it sort of gave me a sense of the place. And I, I was hearing tidbits about the United States past involvement in Congo. Um, and that's what sent me digging. And I, I subsequently returned to Congo three more times um, uh, once I had uh, decided to write this book. Yeah, no, it it was cool reading a story about a particular place in Africa during a particular time because, and, and this probably has a lot to do with me being American and being, you know, growing up American-centric. But when... I think of Africa, I grew up thinking of Africa just as a whole, you know, like I want to go to Africa, not countries individually. And I feel like a lot of people who grow up in America kind of think like that, like you'll go, I want to go to Germany, I want to go to France, and or I want to visit Africa. And I didn't realize just the, the vast differences and the, the, the different uh, ways in which the cultures across the entire continent, which which makes sense, or fluctuate with the people like yourself that I've been able to speak to, who have traveled to Africa. So I, I just thought it, it was cool to just have a little more of an insight into this particular place. Yeah, um, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. In the, in the American imagination, Africa is often, you know, there's there's even a, a blog of academics called "Africa is a Country" poking fun at yeah. that <laughs> phenomenon that um, checks and, out. And, <laughs> Um, 
But in fact, today it is made up of 54 very different countries with their own unique histories and cultures and politics and all that. And so, yeah, part of the the goal in writing this book, I mean, when I began my research, I knew very little. And so I myself was on a, a journey of learning and discovery and, you know, tried to share that with the reader, um, make things understandable for someone who uh, is not an expert but also um you know get into the nuance and complexity because that's where the interesting stuff often lies yeah i i have to ask you so we, we were talking briefly before we started recording and i mentioned that i've been living in panama for the last six months and when i announced to my family that i was moving to panama to work remotely because my girlfriend got a job down there i got a decent amount of pushback about the area being dangerous and, you know, cartels or drug traffic, like things like that. And no one in my family had ever been to Panama. And then I lived in Panama and I was so blown away, pleasantly surprised. It's an absolutely beautiful country. Did you have any of that from your friends or family, colleagues, or just even like your own uh, pre-assumptions before you went down to the Congo that were completely flipped on their head by your experience down there? Um, I mean, I, I really didn't have many conceptions. In terms of, of safety, um, I should be clear that I was not, you know, trekking through dangerous areas whatsoever. I was, you know, interviewing people at hotels and cafes in their homes and cities. So, yeah. um, you know, the, the only worry was, you know, the type of street crime that you could worry about in a thousand different cities across the world. Um, so I, I don't want to you know, give the impression that I, I was taking great personal risk by, by going to the Congo. But um, I mean, they're really, what I'll say is I think there's, there's no substitute for actually going to a place to understand it. Um, not that, you know, separate brief trips will make you fully understand it, but just to see what daily life looks like. And particularly in the case of the Congo, a lot of the structures from colonial times are still around. And so a lot of the, the buildings that existed in 1960 and that feature in my story are still there. So I could look at them and, you know, see what it looks like when the sun sets on the river. I or, you know, I visited the site where Patrice Lumumba was murdered. And and a lot of these wow. places have have physically stayed largely the same. And so it was indispensable to me to be able to describe the places. It was also um, I mean, most useful was the personal interviews that I was able to do on the ground in Congo to give you just one example. So when I went to the place where Lumumba was executed, it's um, you know a little outside uh, a provincial capital called Lubumbashi, which used to be known as Elizabethville back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went there to see the site. And when I was there, my um, the the local journalist I was working with, you know, fixer as they're often called, um, was speaking with the people there. And someone said that, oh, you know, there's a man um, who's quite old now, but he lives nearby. And back in 1961, he actually witnessed the murder of Lumumba. And so I said, yes, I'd like to talk to him. And, you know, an hour or two later, he, um, came, you know, someone had, had fetched him on a motorbike and I was able to sit down with this man who by then was in his um, you know, 70s, uh, late 70s probably, um, and interview him about uh, you know what he saw that night, which also sort of tracked with what we know from other sources about the 
Patrice Lumumba's final moments. And so um, I could only have gotten that interview by physically going there. And then, you know, it ended up in the book. I was able to talk about how this man was uh, on a hunting trip for antelope with his father. And then you know, late at night sees these um, headlights come off the road and, and Lumumba is let out of a car and then soon shot. So they're, they're really, I mean, in my experience as a journalist more generally, but also specifically writing this book, there's, there's no substitute for actually showing up. Was he was was this the first time that that man went on record saying that he witnessed Lumumba's assassination or did, did the government know about it previously? Um, I think he was a known entity and, in fact, helped, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, helped the government, the current government um, or sort of the, the government at the, at the time, you know, several years ago, decide where to locate a memorial because he had witnessed it. Um, I think he had given an interview to Congolese television briefly um you know a photographer had met him so i didn't you know discover him but um but uh in terms of you know presenting his story in english to a wide audience i don't think anyone had had done that before yeah i mean that that story in itself like i can't imagine if if i'm going on a hunting trip or I'm, i'm hiking through the woods and I come back and my friends ask me what happened. And I'm like, I think I saw Joe Biden get assassinated. And yeah. they're just like, what? And I'm like, I, I don't know. It was dark, but it kind of looked like him. Like just witnessing something like that for his own psychological sanity. And, and I'm sure from talking to him, uh, he might have went into that. But just like the amount that you would question yourself and what you actually saw. Yeah. I mean, he he stumbled upon a extremely important moment in African and and world history. Yeah. So Patrice Lumumba, he he was born into the Belgian Congo in 1925. And prior to that, there was a long history with King Leopold. I I think King Leopold II came to power over the Congo in, was it the 1880s through like 1908? Yeah, exactly. So um, in the late 19th century, uh, European colonial powers were snatching up bits of Africa and King Leopold II of Belgium decided that um, for his country to be a proper European country, it needed to have a colony. And so he sent uh, Henry Morton Stanley, a Welsh American explorer, uh, you know, most Famously, he he was the one who found Dr. Livingston and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, although the, um, whether he yeah. said that is contested. Uh, and so King Leopold II um, claims Congo f- for himself. It becomes known as the Congo Free State, uh, you know, name that uh, was not, in fact, free in a yeah. way. <laughs> um, and what's interesting about this colony is it wasn't a Belgian colony. It was his personal fiefdom that belonged to him himself. And that was an unusual arrangement. And um, he ran the colony as a sort of resource extraction gambit. And so egregious were the human rights abuses that in 1908, he was forced to transfer the colony from him himself to the Belgian government. And so Colonialism obviously continued under the the Belgian government. Um, you know, the the worst excesses were, uh, you know, had gone by the wayside. But you know, the fundamental brutality and oppression of it um, 
remained. And in fact, many of the colonial officials remained. It's just, you know, that they're who was paying them changed from the king to the government. Um, so yeah, the, Lumumba is born in 1925 in what is still then known as the Belgian Congo. Um, and and then he he begins this real really remarkable personal rise. Yeah. Can can you get into a little bit the types of atrocities that King Leopold was overseeing? Because I read that he killed something like 10 million Congolese people. And I thought I misread that because you never really hear King Leopold II brought up with guys like Hitler or Napoleon, Stalin. But 10 million bodies is insane. That, that's that's uh, an incredible amount of, of human massacre. Yeah. I mean, the, the atrocities were so great that it's almost – it's basically impossible to calculate the true death toll. But so what he did was first the, the – um, the goal was ivory. That was what he was seeking. And then it switched to rubber, natural rubber rubber in um, the vines of trees. And so there was a sort of regime of forced slave labor, forced collection of rubber. Um, and the colonial army, his colonial army would enforce it. Um, famously, uh, um, those Congolese who didn't collect enough rubber had their hands cut off. And these photographs were actually sort of what galvanized this early human rights movement against the atrocities going on there. Um, But yeah, most of the, I mean, some were killed directly by the the military, but many more were killed as a result of the sort of starvation and disease that resulted from this mass social disruption. So there are academic debates about exactly how many people, uh, you know, can be what number you can attribute to the colonial regime, but suffice it to say, it was, you know, atrocious, and um, you know, King Leopold II really should be compared uh, to Mao and, and Stalin and Hitler. Yeah, I mean, just putting putting aside like the the insane amount of atrocities for a second. If you're going to punish someone to make them collect more rubber. I feel like cutting off their hands is the exact opposite of what would make them collect more rubber. Like you, you would think they would devise some other sort of archaic, uh, you know, just like brutal punishment. But I guess like he, King Leopold wasn't actually down there, right? Like he never he actually never visited in the his Congo. Entire life visited the Congo, which is a remarkable fact. I mean, there, there's a great book on this called King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hoekskill that. Um, Maybe some of your listeners have, have heard of, and and, mm. and he goes into great detail about both the atrocities and the campaign against them. So Patrice Lumumba is born into the aftermath of King Leopold's remote pet project atrocities in the Congo in 1925. How, how did he grow up? What what was his upbringing like? So, um. Not a ton is known about his very early life, um, but he was born in a small town called Onalua, um, you know, rural village. Um, his father was uh, something of an alcoholic, we know. Um, he had uh, some older siblings. Um, and then in his, uh, in his late teens or early 20s, he moves to the the nearest really big city, which was then called Stanleyville, now Kisangani. Um, and that was a 
broader trend that was going on of sort of urbanization, especially of African men at the time. And so then he he finds a job in uh, the colonial administration working at, as a postal clerk. Um, and so he sort of obediently starts climbing the rungs of the colonial ladder. Meanwhile, he's um, educating himself. So there were, under colonialism, there were strict limits on uh, how far Congolese could advance. So university education was was prohibited until the very, very end of the colonial era in, in the Congo. Um, professional opportunities were limited. You, you couldn't become a doctor or a lawyer or an architect. Um, mm. you, you could become a you know, veterinary assistant or a, or a postal clerk like Lumumba. Um, and so meanwhile, he's, uh, he's taking correspondence courses. He's educating himself as much as possible, learning good French, um, and, and really rising by dint of his own intelligence and, and pluck. Um, then uh, what happens is he is caught embezzling from the post office, which he um, admitted when mm. he was caught, uh, and st- stealing money from uh, deposits that um, customers would, would place there. And he's thrown in jail, and then sort of that's when his political awakening um, begins. Just to back up before he gets caught for embezzling, when Lumumba is self-educating himself and, you know, in kind of it sounds like almost like a protest against the Congolese uh, ceilings put in place by the Belgians. Like, if you're not going to teach me, I'll teach myself. Were there other Congolese that or like him, like his archetype of personality? Did he have uh, a, a social circle or was he more of a loner guy? Yeah, so there was a whole class of Congolese like Lumumba who were called évolués, which is a French word meaning literally evolved person. And this was an official status that the Belgian colonial administration granted to certain Congolese. You had to mm. prove that you spoke good French, that you ate with a knife and fork, um, that you know you had a proper bathroom in your house. It was this really invasive process to determine whether you were of quote European comportment. Um, and so Lumumba, they'd actually go into your house and say, "Use this cutlery. I want to see how you use it." Now go to the bathroom and and all this stuff. They'd actually go and be there to test you. Yeah, and, and Lumumba himself wrote about this and and wow. the process that it, you know there's someone who would inspect your house and talk to your neighbors about you. So it was it was, I mean, this humiliating process, but it was it was something for which Lumumba eagerly applied because it meant advancement. And so um, he was a member of the sort of association of Evolue. So you know these. They weren't political, but they're sort of these social circles yeah. of elite Congolese who talk to each other in French about important matters. Um, and, you know, he was an impressive, he had an impressive career in the administration. I mean, he was earning a fifth of what a Belgian colleague would make for the same work, which is important to point out. But mm. within the cramped colonial context, he got as high as, as he could. Um and it was almost, I think you mentioned it sort of a protest against the system. There, there may have been part of that, but it was also just advancing as far as he could within that context. There really was a ceiling on how high you could go, and he rose to that level. Um, when he's thrown in jail, 
he writes this book manuscript, which would never be published during his life, only posthumously. And what's mm. interesting about going back today and reading that book, which has since been published, is how moderate his demands seem in retrospect. This is 1956 when he's writing it. In other African colonies or European colonies in Africa, there are independence movements, um, you know, some of them violent, some of them not. Lumumba in this book in 1956 is calling for very modest reforms. You know, could the colonial administration in Congo be a little less racist and grant a little more privilege to evolués such as myself? Yeah. Um, so and- he's not even saying don't be racist. He's saying, could you guys be a little bit less? Can you guys take it easy a little bit? Sort of. He's calling for like little marginal reforms about, yeah. you know, um, you know, we should be change the law on property ownership, blah, blah, blah. Part of this was surely strategic in that he knew what you could and couldn't say, and he was trying to curry favor with the authorities. Um, but I think part of it also represented an, an evolution in progress. Um, and there, one thing you have to keep in mind is that Belgium successfully prevented the emergence of a Congolese political elite for a very long time mm. until one developed inevitably. But they had this expression, no elites no problems. Meaning if you you prevent people from being educated, if you censor what sort of information comes into the Congo, if you prevent them from meeting with each other, if you prevent them from traveling to other places, to conferences and such, then you will not have an elite and the colonial system will endure. And this worked for a really long time until it didn't. Yeah. So was Lumumba kind of living a double life when he was educating himself and being tested by the Belgians for socialite status? Like, like would he be one way when he's around Belgians and then with the Congolese, he just like, you know, fuck them. Let's, you know, we need to do something about this. Like, was there any aspect or evidence of leading a double life like that? You know, that's, that's a great question. I think we, it's really hard to know. One thing we do know is um, there was this uh, sociologist from, from Paris who visited Congo in um, in the early to mid 1950s to do research on African urbanization, and so he went to Stanleyville, and who does he pick as his research assistant? But Patrice Lumumba, who is you know an impressive man about town, speaks French, knows everyone, mm-hmm. you know, real connector type, and. This sociologist would later write this lovely essay, a sort of reflection of this is after Lumumba's death. He'd write this essay about his time in the early fifties before Lumumba was famous, um, when he when the sociologist was was working with him. And what he said was that privately Lumumba would become really offended and seethe at racism. So, for instance, mm. the two, the, the white sociologist and Lumumba, once went uh, on a on a river boat and were told to sit in separate sections because there was segregation. And this was this, you know, obviously very offensive thing and got um, Lumumba you know, sad and angry. Um, he would also sort of, uh, you know, resent when, you know, um, he would be with someone and, and a Belgian person would shake the white person's hand, but not his. So he certainly noticed the racism. How could he not? Um, and, and, Privately, according to the sociologists, you know, really resented it. But in terms of his public comportment, there was none of that visible. Um, only later. So in the time we're talking about now, it's like 
56, 57 when he's in prison. And again, you read you read this manuscript and it's so moderate in retrospect. He's he's um you know politely asking for minor changes to the colonial system. So uh it's sort of we have no record other than what the sociologist wrote of of Lumumba's private thoughts. Um but they they do suggest there there indeed was as as you're saying the sort of difference between his outward uh, official image and what he privately thought, which um, should be expected. Yeah, it, it sounds like Lumumba and Jackie Robinson would have been good friends if they if they were able to get together because it, it 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 seems like they had that similar double life aspect as a black man where you're you know you're acting one way in front of white people and they're spitting in your face calling you slurs and you just have to smile and and act like nothing's wrong and then you know in the privacy of your own home or you're around other people that are experiencing the same thing you sort of let it go because it has to come out somewhere i mean the the document here that comes to mind is lumumba's independence day speech um which he gave upon you know at the ceremonies when the belgians finally handed over the colony um, to the Congolese, and it became an independent country. And it's it's a beautiful speech. It's an important sort of uh, moment in in African history. And it he explains what it felt like to be so systematically discriminated against, and says, you know, who can forget that we had to sit in different sections of a boat, and that um, whites uh, received the formal vu uh, second person in French as opposed French, to the yeah. informal tu. So, you know, clearly this this weighed on him and he would later um, sort of talk about it extremely eloquently in the speech. That was the speech that he made in front of King Bedouin? Yeah, King Baudouin, yeah. King Baudouin. So, did he say something like, we're not going to be your monkeys anymore or so, something like no, that? No, he didn't. That's, a, that's an old a chestnut that's often repeated, but he didn't okay. say that. I have a little footnote about this in my book. Um, that was sort of how many people received it. We're, we're no longer no longer your monkeys, but he, the text of what he said is, is well known and it doesn't include that. That's sort of become a, a myth over the years. Okay, yeah, because I, I remember reading the text, and then I there's a video online. It, it's called the speech that got Lumumba killed. So I watched it on YouTube, and I didn't remember hearing or, or seeing in the subtitles because it was in French. I didn't remember seeing anything like that. But then there are a bunch of articles that said Lumumba says this in front of the king, and it was sort of this moment where he's defying him. But even without that line, it's still very defiant and cathartic speech. Yeah. And I mean, I also think that Lumumba was too sophisticated to have said something so crass. Um, yeah. And, and the speech would have been worse for that line, I think. Um, it, it's such a powerful document on its own. So um, yeah, it's it's it sort of bugged me during my research to find how often that that falsehood is has been repeated. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I assume just in general and historical research, there's a lot of that going on where someone doesn't actually say something, but then people will secondhand say, you know, like Lumumba said this and, yeah, you know, and he was kind of telling. Yeah, sort of yeah. citation laundering and you see these quote unquote facts that get repeated a million times, yeah. but that you then like trace it to the original and it turns out there's nothing there and yeah. no evidence that the thing ever happened. Yeah, I... I was constantly uh, encountering things. Like how, how long did the the research process for this book take? By the way, you know, I started it in 2017, and you know, sent the book to my publisher in early 2023. So, um, oh wow! And basically five years, I would say, uh, not 
full time the whole time. Um, but yeah, it, t- it took a lot. There are a lot of archives to visit, a lot of um, documents to dig up, the trips to Congo, as I mentioned, interviewing people. Um, and, you know, I just sort of became obsessed at a certain point with what happened to Lumumba, what the CIA was up to. I um, mean, there's, there's a wealth of sources to go through and it, it takes a long time to, to sift through everything. So you're actually going to the libraries and, and sifting through the physical archives and, and you know, I imagine there's not a lot that you can look at online if you're trying to look for things that haven't been reported before, trying to yeah, get the original I mean, source. Some libraries are better than others about putting a lot of their stuff online. Like the yeah. JFK library is really good about that. Eisenhower library, less so. I visited that in Kansas. And sort of when you're there, um, and this was advice that a friend of mine who's an academic gave me, you basically become like a human scanner. You know, I'm my camera and I'm trying to get through as many documents as possible, pulling files, whatever is relevant. And then only later do you sit down and look at things closely uh, because you need to make best use of your, your time in the archives. Was, was there a moment that you had where you're going through the physical archives and you were holding a document, a, a piece of history in your hand and you just thought, holy shit, I can't believe I have this or, or, I can't believe no one's reported this before. Did did you have a moment like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, in I went to the the Swedish National Library is where the papers of Dag Hammarskjöld, the UN Secretary General, are kept. And if you go there, you can see the contents of his briefcase um, that he oh, had damn. when he died. And so I went there and I got you know I was looking at Dag Hammarskjöld's wallet, which has you know. DH uh, metal in, engraving in it. Um, and that was really like feeling a part of history. That wasn't new. Other people have you know done that and written about it. Um, in terms of things that, that I don't think others um, noticed, when I was in the Eisenhower Library, I actually didn't even realize what I had stumbled upon until later reviewing the, the PDF of what I had made. Um, I found handwritten notes from the meeting on August 18th, 1960 at the White House, where Eisenhower um, gave an order that was interpreted as demanding the assassination of Lumumba. Um, someone wrote wow. the word Lumumba and then a big black X next to his name. And you know, that wow. on its own is not really proof, but it sort of was one puzzle piece that adds to the, the picture of what happened in that meeting. Yeah, because... I th- I remember re- you you said like the exact words of Eisenhower weren't recorded or or they couldn't be verified, but it was something along the lines of get rid of Lumumba. Yeah, so um, we know this for a few reasons. The um, this was a National Security Council meeting, and there was a note taker present, a man named Robert Johnson, and he would later testify to a Senate investigative committee, the Church Committee. Um, about this meeting and saying, I don't remember the exact words, but I remember that Eisenhower said something about killing Lumumba, something that was clearly that was what he was meant, what he meant. And when Robert Johnson, this note taker, went back to his office and he he asked his boss, what do I do with this comment that Eisenhower just said? I mean, the president just said we should kill Lumumba. Yeah. And his boss told him, oh, don't write that down. So there was no- <laughs> yeah. nothing You might not want to record, record that. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's but but he would later testify to that effect. Um, then there's the you know what I found the the word Lumumba with the big black axe. You know, can't make too much of that, but it, it's something. But most important, 
um, we know what happened next, which is that the CIA sets in motion this bizarre assassination plot involving um, you know, poisons and a syringe. And, and the idea was to put poisons in Lumumba's food or toothpaste. And there, there's yeah. a lot of a, a big paper trail about you know the details of this effort and you know cables going back and forth from the Congo about it. Um, and so, uh, and we know that when the poisons arrived in Congo, the CIA station chief there, he asks the, the CIA chemist who's delivering the poisons, where did the order come from? And he's told it comes from Eisenhower. So yeah. it, it's really beyond doubt in my mind that Eisenhower um, ordered this. Uh, his defenders would deny it, but um, as more evidence came out over time, it sort of became impossible to believe that position. How how many other instances in history are there where the there's a a recording of a president calling for an assassination? Um, well, so to be clear, in this case, there's no uh, or, not a recording, yeah, but, but like a, a, a evidence. Note. Or, yeah, um, I mean, at one point, Eisenhower had said he wished that Castro would be quote sawed off, but that was sort of more yeah. of an offhand comment, and nothing came of that. Um, and after the operation against Lumumba, there were efforts to assassinate Castro, um, none of which really went anywhere, obviously. He was not assassinated. Um, so re- really, a lot of this came out in 1975 with the Church Committee's report on assassination plots, and it looked at, at various ones. But the Lumumba one is um, is notable because it, it's the only one that they looked at where they could link to the president as opposed to sort of the CIA just freelancing on its own. Was it Lumumba with an X to the right of his name or was it Lumumba with an X through the actual uh, It was It was either to the right or the left of the name. It was not. Oh, wow. Um, so, you yeah. know, and again, that could just be, oh, we're talking about Lumumba now and then you're doodling an X. So I don't, I don't want to make too much of that, but um, yeah. it's, it's interesting to note. Yeah, it's it's also interesting to think about the the double speak that a president would have to use in order to let his colleagues know that he wants an assassination without actually saying it. Like what whether it's Eisenhower or Biden whoever, you can't just come out and say have this guy killed. You have to say something like it would be pleasing to me if this person disappeared by this date and they're exactly. just like, all right, we got it. <laughs> Plausible deniability was really yeah. operating here. And so you see that in other places. So a week after that August 18th meeting, um, Eisenhower's national security advisor, a man named Gordon Gray, is meeting with the head of the CIA, Alan Dulles. And the notes from that meeting contain a lot of doublespeak. So it's it's it, the exact quote is in my book, but it's something like, uh, you know, the national security advisor referred to the comments um, said by his associate earlier about the importance of urgent action against Lumumba or something. So the translation being, uh, hey, CIA director, remember how last week the president said you need to kill Lumumba? Uh, Like, let's get on. Yeah. So um, there was a lot of double speak, and even in the cables back and forth from Leopoldville, the capital of the Bel- uh, the capital of the Congo, there was double speak um, because they didn't want the code room operator to know about it. So there's sort of you you read between the lines, and it's obvious what's what's being said, but there was a reluctance to um, 
put anything so blunt as you know let's kill lumumba down on paper yeah if so if i'm the president and i'm hypothetically gonna order someone's assassination if i'm already willing to do that why wouldn't i just say it directly and then change the notes of the meeting because if you're doing one thing that's really bad why wouldn't you do the other thing that's just kind of bad yeah, I mean, that's a fair question. I think in this instance, Eisenhower was in a big meeting at the National Security Council with, you know, 20-odd people there. And he said this comment while looking directly at Alan Dulles, and everyone understood what it meant. Um, mm. Why did he not just say, hey, Alan, um, can you work on an assassination operation against the yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was worried about what would be written down um, and wanted to sort of you know, even if the note taker had written everything down, wanted to preserve some plausible deniability there. I mean, maybe he himself was uncomfortable with um, saying it so bluntly and didn't want to admit it. You know. um, but again, the, the operating thing here was plausible deniability. You don't want to have things traced back to the president. The whole idea of the CIA is that that's the agency that does the dirty work and you know, the fewer questions asked, the better. Yeah. Um, so I, I I wanted to go back to Lumumba getting charged with embezzlement because we, mm-hmm. we glossed over that before I, I took us on a bunch of tangents. Um, but so he, he was charged with embezzlement. You said that was 1955 or 1960, uh, 1956 56, around then. Yeah. Do we know what his motivation was for the embezzlement? Yeah, he explained it himself. It was to get more money because it was expensive. He was living as a quote, unquote, Europeanized African in Stanleyville. Mm. And that was expensive. He wanted to send his kids to the good European school. He had newspaper and magazine subscriptions, um, you know, the correspondence courses. He had gotten a loan for a house. So all these things that he was doing to raise his own standard of living and to be part of that évolué scene and to sort of um, – match the Europeans in what he would talk about as their sort of level of civilization, that was all expensive. And he was getting paid, as I mentioned earlier, a fifth of what a Belgian colleague would make for the same exact work. And yeah. so he sort of resorted to um, you know, stealing from the till, basically. And he was caught and, and he admitted it. And, and his defense was as exactly as I just explained that, you know, I, you know, it got expensive. I needed the money. You know, he claimed, oh, I intended to pay it back someday, um, you know, describing it as, as loans to himself. But um, but he 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 fessed up. And um, I mean, the broader context here is, uh, I think, important that like he was in a fundamentally unjust system getting, um, you know, screwed in terms of his pay and and stole from his oppressive masters. Um, yeah. and, and that would really be used against him. Um, you know, years later, American officials, including the director of the CIA would refer to him as, you know, dishonest because of his embezzlement con- conviction. Other Congolese would use it against him. Um, you know, when he co-founded a, a political party, that was a big obstacle. He was seen as, uh, you know, a thief. And so we can't trust him and that sort of thing. So it, it, yeah. was a, it would be a, remain a black mark on his career. That is the most relatable excuse for stealing money though. Like my pay 
wasn't high enough to match the lifestyle I wanted to live. <laughs> so I just stole some money. Yeah, he was uh, <laughs> he was straight up about it. Yeah. So you mentioned that we don't know a ton about Lumumba's interaction with his family when he was growing up. You said his dad is an alcoholic. Um, was he... Do we know if he's in contact with his family throughout the years where he's educating himself up until he goes to jail? Is he writing letters or anything? Is he going back and visiting? Um, I know that he did not visit frequently. frequently. In fact, that visiting sociologist I meant, I, I mentioned, um, when he and Lumumba were in, in Stanleyville together, uh, they went on a trip back to Lumumba's home village. And I, I believe that the exact numbers in my book, but I think it was like the first time Lumumba had been home in 10 years. So, um, I mean, travel was difficult. Um, but he had sort of, you know, outgrown his, his humble origins and was now, a, a, you know, uh, an impressive Congolese man in this, this bustling provincial capital. Um, I don't know if he wrote, uh, letters. Uh, I mean, I relied heavily on this biography, written in French of, of Lumumba's early years, which um, is written mm. by two scholars who sort of meticulously, um, you know, combed the record for, for every detail there is, but it just, it's, you know, a lot of the, there's sort of scant sources about Lumumba in the you thirties know, and forties, but they interviewed his childhood friends. And, um, and so there is you know, a certain amount that's known. So he spends, you said it was a year in jail. Uh, I think about a year. Yeah. Is that time particularly transformative for him? Is he doing a lot of self-reflection? Do we know kind of what he was thinking during that time? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is that that was when he wrote that that book manuscript I mentioned. He, okay. um, he hoped it would get published. Uh, it was rejected by the publisher during his lifetime, published afterwards. Um, so I think prison, um, as it did many other Congolese and as it did many other Africans who had later become independence leaders, it, it, you know, radicalizes one to a certain extent. Um, but only some of that was visible in Lumumba's writing because he was a quote unquote evolué. He actually was allowed, um, more privileges than the average Congolese prisoner. So he could keep his lights on later. He got a different uniform, that sort of thing. Um, but he, he used it to write that book manuscript. He was also writing letters furiously, um, to everyone he could and, you know, trying to provide for his family, um, writing letters of, you know, asking for relief from, uh, you know, Belgian ministers. He even wrote to the King of Belgium, um, whom he had met very briefly, in fact, when the, the King visited Stanleyville, uh, earlier. So he was, he was a tireless correspondent and writer during his time in jail. Um, and then was released, in fact, um, because of the intervention of, a Belgian minister who mm. had sort of taken a liking to Lumumba and and corresponded with him before. Yeah, th that seems to be a common thread amongst a lot of transformative political leaders that they spend a certain period of time in jail and then after jail they come out and they just hit the ground running. Like something about just going to jail sparks uh, like a, a rage or enthusiasm. I don't know what it is because. I've never been, but I imagine having all that time to yourself and, and being able to sort of really think about things and write about things feeds that feeds feeds that thing inside you that wants to make a difference. Yeah. And it, it would, in fact, 
that was just the first of two times that Lumumba was imprisoned under colonial review, uh, under colonial rule. Mm. The second time was uh, in the fall of 1959, and that was for overtly political reasons. I mean, the, the first time was sort of more of a, a just objective crime. The second time was he gave a speech, a, you know, an anti-colonial speech that um, was the reason he he landed in jail, and that you know um, that was probably even more radicalizing, although it was also later on in his uh, political yeah. development was further ahead. So so he gets out of jail for the embezzlement after about a year. What is his plan after that? What What is he thinking when he gets out? So he has to leave Stanleyville. The colonial authorities there hate him. He has this embarrassing embezzlement conviction on his record. He's never going to get hired by the colonial authorities again. So he moves to um, the capital, Leopoldville. Um, and in fact, he had already, he was serving out the rest of his sentence there as it happened. So he's released from jail in Leopoldville, um, the capital of the Congo at the time. And he then reinvents himself as a beer salesman of all things. So there's mm. a, a brewery in town there. In fact, two main breweries and Lumumba is hired by the sort of newer upstart one to be a beer promoter. And he travels from bar to bar trying to convince um, drinkers to, you know, pick this beer, not that beer. And that is really where he enters into politics in earnest. This is 1957. He becomes, um, he learns uh, the uh, local language. Um, he is meeting everyone, you know, traveling around town. And that's, it's in that sort of environment of beer that he takes the plunge into politics, links up with other um, elites who are now starting to actually talk about independence and breaking free from Belgium. Um, because you know, things happened very quickly, basically, at the end of Belgian colonial rule, there had been you know, lots of stability and the Belgians thought they could keep on, keep holding on to their colony for decades to come, literally, was what they thought. And yeah. then very, very quickly, uh, it became unsustainable to do that. The Congolese were pushing back. There was soon a riot in Leopoldville and the Belgians um, belatedly realized, oh, we need to offload our colony. This isn't going to work. We don't want a, a war like what the French are facing in Algeria. And so everything was extremely rushed. Yeah. And so during this time, he's traveling around the Congo as a beer salesman. I, like, I, I can't think of a better way to get to the heart of political issues than saying to someone, hey, do, do you want some beer? And then they get a little bit lubed up and then they start really letting it fly about what they're unhappy with, what they wish the country would be. I feel like that's what a politician should be. Like, the, like a trustworthy politician is someone that talks to a lot of people that are just your average worker. They're not this sort of like anointed figure that rises through the ranks immediately. Like they've put in the groundwork hearing the struggles from just like the average person from town to town. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I hadn't thought of it until now, but in American politics, there's that sort of age old polling question, which presidential candidate would you want to have a beer with? And yeah. uh, Lumumba had, Ample experience in that, and he, you know, he, I don't think he was traveling around the entire country as a beer salesman, just the 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 capital. But as you suggested, surely got to have his finger on the pulse of ordinary people's concerns 
Um, he was also, I mean, two other aspects of him should be mentioned. One, he was a really charismatic speaker. Everyone who met him agreed about this. Even his um, most intense enemies admitted that he was just a remarkable speaker who really had a way with words and was sort of almost, you know, just could uh, could really um, gain the attention yeah. of a crowd very easily. Um, and the other thing was he was a really effective political organizer. This was a skill he had practiced in his days in Stanleyville, where he was joining all these different associations of evolués, um, you know, holding meetings, um, getting documents printed, enlisting supporters, all that sort of nuts and bolts of politics he was extremely good at. And so I think those two things really explain a lot of his success as a politician. Yeah, I, I wish there were more records on his early life because I would really love to know if he was always a charismatic person, if he was someone like a, a class clown or had a lot of friends, or if he was extremely shy and then learned to be charismatic through being a beer salesman or just through I think being the forced. Like, yeah. We know he was something of an unruly teenager. He got kicked okay. out of multiple schools. Um, he also was sort of known for being able to convince other boys to, you know, engage in mischief with him. So I think he was a born leader, um, an extrovert, someone yeah. who uh, was popular, charismatic, influential, that type of person. Yeah. And I'm sure the sales aspect only helped him be a politician because you have, what, like three seconds to convince someone that you're not completely full of shit. And if you're going around selling things from door to door, I'm, I'm sure you just like you're downloading all this information on, you know, how I make people become interested. And then you're listening to what they're saying. You're 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 figuring out how to sell their deepest desires back to them. So all, all of that, it seems like it would only uh, strengthen his political career. Yeah, uh, I think it, it at a minimum didn't hurt. Yeah. Um, so Lumumba is, is he's traveling around the capital. He's he's slinging brew. When when does he start to become a, a serious political contender? How does that shift happen from beer salesman to, OK, now this guy is like fast on the rise in politics? Yeah. So uh, in the fall of 1958. Um, he gets together with some other Congolese elites who, you know, thinking the same way about things, and they form a political party called the Congolese National Movement. Um, and at that point, the other main group in town is this this organization called Abako, which was originally a sort of um, association of people from the same ethnic group, but then it was, you know, cultural, and then it sort of shifted into politics. So you're starting to see by the, the late 1950s, the emergence of these sort of overtly political pro-independence groups. And Lumumba was, you know, an early participant in all that. Um, so that's in the fall of 1958. Um, and, uh, then at a certain point, I think it's at the beginning of 1959, he resigns from his job at the brewery and um, you know is full-time in politics. And just to go back to that point about how remarkably quickly everything moved, independence happens in June 1960. Um, and so you know, only in late 1958 is the political party formed. Um, but even then, no one really thought independence was around the corner. Um, in the 
at the beginning of 1960, it wasn't known that Congo was going to become independent that year. Like that's how yeah. rushed everything was in the last minute. Yeah. I mean, that that's that's an insanely rapid rise to, to be a beer salesman a year and a half or two years before you become the head of an entire country. And, and you didn't even know that the country was going to be independent at the time you were just a, a you know door to door salesman like that that has to be the most uh trial by fire political story i've ever heard yeah i mean there really was no alternative so other colonies in africa those run by the french and the british had these sort of proto political institutions or sort of like you know quasi fake democratic institutions that didn't have true real power, but like, at least, you know, there was a legislature and people passed bills and that sort of thing. So there was these institutions in place, but the Congolese had absolutely none of that. So you had no politicians really, um, because they weren't allowed to be in charge of anything under colonial rule. So, um, it was only, it was always going to be uh, that Congo's political leaders were people with basically no real political experience because there wasn't a chance to be that. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think about just as like a a side tangent about the the job of a politician? Do do you think it's advantageous for someone to practice being a politician? Essentially, you know, after college, you immediately go on a path to, I want to be a district representative, then I want to be state representative, then I want to be, uh, you know, congressman, house president. Do you, do you see that as a good thing? Or are you, uh, w- would you like to see more of a grassroots approach where politician isn't necessarily a set career path where you're on the rise towards a goal, but you're just more of a guy or girl that's working and you also happen to be in politics? Um, you know, I think the way I think about that question is more experience with governing and how government works is probably better than less. Um, so, you know, had there been a chance for there to be Congolese lawyers, for instance, that probably would have been really useful when the Congolese came to power and were suddenly having to negotiate treaties and pass bills and all of that. Um, the Belgians would never allow it. And so, um, you know, that doesn't explain all of what happened in Congo in the crisis. Um, but I think one factor was the just utter lack of preparation and rushed nature of independence. And so um, none of the men taking power had uh, you know much education or experience because they weren't allowed to. Had they all gone been able to go to university, would there have been no crisis? I mean, probably not. But it, it didn't help that they were yeah. um, so sort of politically stunted by dint of the the belgian repression yeah so so the whole trial by fire charismatic superstardom rise that was uh advantageous to lumumba in one way was also the, the lack of preparation the lack of the the political foundation also contributed to a lot of what happened that we'll get into. Yeah. I mean, I, the way I put it in the book is that Lumumba was his country's greatest politician, but perhaps its worst statesman. Yeah. Um, he was incredibly popular, as I mentioned, very good at you know, 
having his finger on the pulse of the population very much represented a, a popular strain of opinion. When he was in power, um, you know, in large part because he was facing unprecedented events beyond his control and lots of people trying to undermine him, but he was to a certain extent erratic and he switched his position frequently. He rubbed a lot of um, you know diplomats and fellow Congolese politicians the wrong way. Um, he he could have uh, acted differently. Um, this is not to blame him for what happened, but to you know, point out that he had agency and decision-making power and, um, and a lot of his attributes as a leader were, um, were helpful to getting him to where he was and, uh, you know, it made him very popular, but he also had certain characteristics, characteristics that, um, were impediments to, yeah. to staying in power. So when Lumumba starts his political rise a couple years before Congolese independence, are the Belgians aware of the the size of the following that he's gaining, and are they interested in stopping him? Are do they not care? Like, what's sort of the Belgian attitude when they see Lumumba rising in the the political sphere? Well, one data point I like to give is that in 1955, so five years before independence, a Belgian academic wrote a pamphlet, uh, an article called the the 30-year plan for the independence of the Belgian Congo. The idea was that only by 1985 would this colony finally be ready to be an independent country. Mm-hmm. For that article, he almost lost his job. It was seen as way too aggressive a timeline, way too short, way too controversial, heretical an idea. Um, so that gives you a sense of the Belgian thinking that as late as 1955, yeah. they imagined they'd have this for longer than 1985. Things, of course, changed extremely quickly in a few short years. And so the rise of Lumumba, I think it was viewed by the Belgians in the broader context of like the sort of um, uncapping of all sorts of nascent politics. And so really his um, you know true political rise would happen in the uh, spring of, or the, the fall of 59 and, and early 1960, which is he gives this speech in Stanleyville. He's arrested for it, um, thrown in jail. And then uh, the Congolese and the Belgians are having this roundtable conference in Brussels to negotiate the details of independence. Lumumba is freed from jail so that he can attend that conference, dominates the conference, um, is you know the, the most uh, powerful delegate on the Congolese side, and then there are elections in May 1960, and that's where he's traveling across the country, meeting people, giving speeches, and he wins those elections, or he gets the most votes in those elections, and that's sort of his his true rise. And I think the, the Belgians looked at it with um, with alarm. They did not like Lumumba. He was, you know, there was a political party that that was seen as the you know compliant pro Belgian political party that would basically let a lot of things stay in place even after independence. Lumumba was opposed to that. He was fiercely pro-independence. And so in 1960, I'd say that's when the Belgians really start to worry about this guy, Lumumba. Yeah. And you said he originally, Lumumba originally started out as, uh, he he wasn't overtly anti-colonial at the beginning of his political career, but then he became uh, anti-colonial. 
Yeah, at this in, point. in in well, I mean, the word anti I'm he at some or level like against must Belgian have imposed, rule. Yeah. Let's let's use the word pro independence. Pro independence, yeah. Um, and he did not argue for that in 1956 when he was writing his book. Um, in only in sort of 1958 when he co-founded that political party was he openly arguing that. And even then, the timeline for when independence would happen was left a little vague. Um, that changed very quickly over the course of 1959. And, and he and others were sort of competing with each other to make demands about, you know, Congolese independence has to be, you know, by the end of 1960. No, it has to be by the beginning of 1960. So um, there was sort of a competitive pressure to push for independence as soon as possible. This The speech that Lumumba made that got him thrown in prison the second time, you said that was the fall of 1959? Yeah, it was, or- I think October 1959. Does that does that coincide with the Leopoldville riots, or is that after? no? So the, well, that was January nineteen fifty nine was the Leopoldville riots. Okay, um, and and basically what then in October Stanleyville had its own version of that, um, which were pinned on Lumumba because he had given this speech before the riot. Um, and yeah, I mean the the basic thing the Belgians were finding out was that uh, you know. People don't like being ruled by a distant power who, you know, is racist and oppresses them. And so Leopoldville rose up in January. Um, there was a there was a brutal crackdown on the part of the colonial authorities, but there was also a recognition on their part that independence probably had to happen at some point. Again, when exactly was left open, but. Um, that those Leopoldville riots were sort of a key moment in uh, the history of events that led to independence. Okay. So that, that riot was the key moment, kind of like the turning point for Belgium realizing that they're eventually going to give up the Congo. Like they can't do it anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. So Lumumba goes to prison for the speech. He's let out of prison to attend the conference. Is he... Uh, at the point of the conference, is it determined that is the date set yet for Congolese independence, or the does date that happen? Was a- set at the conference. That at was the conference. one of the, okay. the details that was hammered out. Okay, and then Lumumba is he free from prison after the conference, or do they send him back into? Yeah, prison? he's he's free. Um, you know, at that point. So basically, what what happened is, uh. Everyone wanted him to be at the conference. The his Congolese rivals thought, oh, if he's not here, he'll then denounce all the decisions we made without him. Um, the Belgians realized, oh, if Lumumba's not here, well then whatever's agreed here might not have legitimacy because Lumumba might, you know, criticize it. So it mm. sort of made sense from everyone's perspective, okay, you can't just ignore one of the biggest political personalities in the Congo, he has to be involved in this process. And so he was mm. sprung from jail. He um, lands dramatically in Brussels and and holds up. He had bandages on his wrists from where the handcuffs had uh, you know, rubbed his skin raw and he's ha- holding up these um, these bandages to everyone. So it's this, it's this dramatic arrival. And, and um, then at the conference, uh, that's where the sort of key decisions are made about what sort of government Congo is going to have, when is independence, et cetera. Okay. And so in between the conference and the date of 
the Congo's independence, June 30th, 1960, that's when the election happens or that that's when uh, Lumumba gets voted in as the future prime minister. Yeah, that's there's parliamentary elections in May okay. 1960. His party wins more seats than any other party, not a majority though. And so therefore in late June, he's asked to form a government because it's a, a parliamentary system. So if your party has the most seats, then um, the leader of that party is is asked to form a government, and he does. Okay. So Lumumba's voted in by parliament. Belgium gives up the Congo June 30th, 1960. That's that's when Lumumba makes the speech in front of the king, where he doesn't say the thing about the monkeys, but it is a very bold, uh, very bold, empowering statement for the Congolese. What What goes down after independence. Yeah. So there's a few days of relative calm and then everything explodes. Um, So on July 5th, the army mutinies. So the army at that point still had an all Belgian, all white officer corps. And then the rank and file was black Congolese men. And naturally, as you might suspect, uh, this was not a popular arrangement among the rank and file to have to salute their white Belgian officers, even though their country is supposedly independent. Um, they had also been you know, underpaid for a while and there were, there were other complaints. And so they mutiny against their officer corps, um, you know, are harassing them, humiliating them, imprisoning them, that sort of thing. And also they're sort of running wild um, and terrorizing the fairly significant Belgian population of the Congo. So there are a lot of Belgians, you know, who had businesses or were still working for the Congolese administration after independence. And so these Belgians were suddenly terrified about these um, soldiers on the loose without their white officers. And so there was a massive flight of Belgians where they escaped the country any way they could, Mm. by car, by plane, by riverboat. Um, And then to make matters even more complicated and and worse, the Belgian military intervenes and sends paratroopers dropping across the country. Mm. It it did this ostensibly to protect Belgian citizens, but it didn't get Congolese permission for this. So in effect, Belgium was invading a foreign country that happened to be its former colony um, without permission. And so that's this like intense chaotic crisis and, it gets even worse when on July 11th, less than you know, two weeks after independence, the mineral-rich province of Katanga in the country's southeast announces its secession, that it's breaking off from the rest of Congo, which it views as you know, too chaotic. And so um, so within two weeks of independence, Lumumba's country is just literally you know, falling apart. There's um, chaos in the streets, uh, you know, soldiers intervening across the country. Yeah province where all the revenue comes from has announced it's going its own way. And that is this sort of unprecedented crisis that he he confronts. Um, so he, he barely had time to, you know, implement any sort of normal governing agenda. It was crisis mode from nearly day one. Was there any sort of collaborative plan to for the Belgians to pull out that was made between Lumumba and, and Belgium? Or were was it just kind of like a free-for-all with 
because uh, like you, you mentioned the the officers, the white officers were still in charge of the black Congolese officers after independence. So I assume there was some sort of plan to gradually pull them out or pull them out all at once. There was a, a very, very gradual plan to quote unquote Africanize the officer corps. Um, but it was, I forget the exact details, but it was something like the first Congolese officer would only enter service in like the mid 1960s, according to this schedule. Okay. So no one really expected this crisis after independence, um, including Lumumba. He imagined, I mean, he signed off on the the officer corps remaining all white. Um, and uh, But this was just you know, not sustainable and, and the soldiers um, rebelled against it. So uh, yeah, I mean, the, the original vision for independence was that there'd be a lot of um, Belgians still staying and running things, um, you know, because expertise had been denied to Congolese people, you needed a lot of Belgians to sort of, you know, be air traffic control uh, you know, officers and um, military officers and uh, doctors and dentists and whatnot. So there was this whole part of the plan was to have all these Belgians stay and part of what caused this long crisis was the fact that when there was the mutiny, most of them fled. Was there, I remember reading something about an incident before the mutiny where, uh, after independence, but before the mutiny, where the Congolese soldiers and Belgian soldiers were getting in some sort of a disagreement. And then a Belgian officer wrote on a whiteboard or something before independence equals after independence is, so is that that was actually that, the day of the mutiny july day of 5th. The mutiny. and the man who wrote that was emil janssens who was the head of the army he was a belgian um general who was in charge he had been in charge of the colonial army and was now in charge of the independent country's new army and as there started to be stirrings um he wrote, as you said, on the blackboard saying before independence equals after independence, i.e. like nothing's changing, you know, don't have these uh, intense expectations of things improving. You still have to obey the chain of command and the officers are still going to be white, et cetera. And that uh, um, it, you know, perfectly encapsulated his and the, and the Belgian view of, of how things would be. And it uh, perfectly offended the Congolese soldiers. Yeah. So on paper, there was some sort of plan to increase the rank of the the Congolese soldiers, but the Belgian officers were pretty much like that. This is not happening. Like, don't expect well, it anytime more, soon. Yeah, the the plan on paper was like really slow and and yeah. eventual. Yeah. So you have June thirtieth independence. You have the mutiny July fifth, five days later, and you have Katanga seceding. 11 days later. So Blamumba inherited just an absolute shit show. Like it, it mm-hmm. sounds like the, the SpongeBob meme where he's just sitting in a classroom and everything's on fire and he's like, it's okay. Like it's fine. It's all going to shit, but you know, yeah, I don't think he thought it was okay though. So it's, it's uh, different in that respect. So, so he's a properly reacting SpongeBob meme in that sense. <laughs> um, what what does Lumumba start to 
do or or think? What are what are his actions after the mutiny and the secession? So there there are two important things he does. One is he puts his friend in charge of the military, in charge of Africanizing the military. And that friend is a man named Joseph Mobutu, who, spoiler alert, will end up being the dictator of the Congo for over 30 years. Um, But at that point, he was Lumumba's protege, sort of his intern assistant. Lumumba had made him a junior minister in the new government. Um, Mobutu's still in his 20s at this point. But he had served in the colonial army and had military experience. And so in Lumumba's mind, he was the natural person, you know, close ally who has military experience. Okay, Mobutu, you're in charge of helping put down the mutiny and um, getting, uh, you know, building up an African, you know, Congolese officer corps. Um, So that's the first decision Lumumba makes. Mm. would be very consequential for his own fate and the entire history of Congo. The second decision he would make is to call on the United Nations for help. So on July 12th, he sends a desperate cable to New York, to the UN headquarters, to Doug Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General, asking for the UN to help um, you know, put down the chaos in the Congo. And that would lead to this very impressively quickly set up UN peacekeeping operation where you had soldiers drawn from fellow African countries mostly uh, who were flown to the Congo by mostly American planes and, um, you know, in charge of restoring order and, you know, parading through the streets and demonstrating that there was now an authority happening. Um, and, and that UN peacekeeping operation was the most ambitious thing the UN had ever done. It was, you know, just in terms of size and expense, it was bigger than anything the United Nations had ever done before. Previously, Mm -hmm. it had just sort of, you know, monitored ceasefires and truces. Now it was in charge of restoring order to an entire country. Mm. So the the peacekeeping operation, Dag Hammarskjöld agrees to it. What happens from when the the american soldiers are sent in to keep order do they are they successful does shit just keep hitting the fan like how, how does that play out yeah um not american soldiers but sort of un, UN soldiers who are, who are um you know african soldiers with the un helmet and, and patch on their uniform um so uh Dog Hammarskjöld gets the security council to back this resolution allowing for this force sets up this um, force. They get to Congo in, in record time. It's sort of this moment of great hope and international cooperation. You know, the Soviets are helping out with the airlift as well. Americans and the British are helping out. Um, all these newly independent African countries are contributing troops. It's, it's this real moment of international cooperation and hope. Um, the problem is that they can't solve what Lumumba views as the biggest problem in Congo, which is the secession of Katanga. The, the mineral-rich heart of the country, the you know economic engine, is now detached and refuses to even let Lumumba land there. It's styling itself as a foreign country now. And Lumumba wants the UN peacekeepers to go in there and, and bring it back into the fold and allow his central government to rule over Katanga but Dag Hammarskjöld and the UN won't agree to that. And so that's mm. where this big tension comes in, uh, between Lumumba and Hammarskjöld. And it also causes Lumumba to go to others for help. Does 
does Doug Hammarskjöld meet Lumumba after the UN started its first peacekeeping effort, and then didn't he decide he just didn't like him or something? Like he met him and he was like, "Fuck this guy," actually, and didn't help him anymore. So Lumumba flies to uh, New York in late July, nineteen sixty. Um, you know, a couple of weeks after the peacekeeping operations begun, and he goes there to meet with Hammarskjöld, and they they have a series of meetings over several days, and um, as you suggested, they completely fail uh, at both a, on both a substantive level and a stylistic level. So substantively, Lumumba can't get Hammarskjöld to agree to. Um, invade Katanga and with the UN force and bring it back into the central government's fold. And stylistically, they just they didn't see eye to eye. They didn't get along. Um, Hammarskjöld, another um, an African diplomat, a Ghanaian diplomat, would later write that he thought the problem was that Hammarskjöld just couldn't uh, accept the idea of an African leader sort of talking back to him and pushing back. So there there may have been. A racial element to it. Okay. Um, also, just Hammarskjöld was legalistic, diplomatic. Um, so, you know, in his fifties, Lumumba was blunt, impatient, desperate. In his thirties, so there there were a lot of reasons, um, but they didn't get along, uh, and Lumumba didn't get agreement on, on what he wanted. And so then Lumumba travels to D.C. goes to Washington. Um, wants to meet with President Eisenhower. Eisenhower is out of town on vacation, um, so instead he gets a meeting with with the Secretary of State. That also goes poorly. Lumumba asks for direct U.S. aid, um, asks for a, an American airplane to help him fly around Congo because the Belgian pilots won't let him, yeah. and uh, the Americans sort of rebuff him. Um, and it's then, and only then when Lumumba then turns to the Soviet Union for help. Yeah. And so this whole time, the the Cold War obviously is in full swing because it's, it's 1960 at this point. Cold War is like 1945 or 48, something like that. Um, while all this is hap- happening in Africa, and there are, I think it was 17 other countries also became independent around that time. What do the United States and the Soviet Union think about what's going on in Africa? Are they interested? Are they not even thinking about it because of the Cold War? Are they positioning themselves already? Like, what what is their attitude towards yeah, what's going on? Yeah, they're very much thinking about it because the what you had was all these when these colonies were when these places were European colonies there wasn't really anything to worry about from the American perspective. Um, Now that they were becoming independent countries, well, one, that meant they were sort of up for grabs in the Cold War game. They could choose to ally themselves with the Soviet bloc or with the American-led Western bloc. Um, And also, you had these populations who, by dint of having been living under oppressive colonialism for decades, were sort of predisposed to be anti-European and therefore they might be anti-Western. And the Soviets mm. certainly thought that. They thought, oh, these are going to be natural allies for us. Um, you know, in we're proclaiming to be against the American imperialists, against the European imperialists. We, we can our message will will find uh, great purchase in in these countries. So it was very much 
an area of interest for both sides in the Cold War. Um, the difference was the Soviets in 1960, when it came to Africa, just had far less influence than the Americans could. It, you know, in terms of sort of practical power projection, Africa was very far away from the Soviet Union. Its airlift capabilities were far worse than the American capabilities. Um, and so they viewed Congo in particular as a place where they could score some political points and get some good propaganda because here the evil Belgian imperialists are doing bad things to this um, you know, free country, but they didn't view it as a place where they, the Soviets, would have real influence. Yeah. So all this is going on, the United States and, and Soviet Union are, are keeping a close eye. Then you have the... Uh, the the UN peacekeeping effort the, the they the Hammarskjöld approves the the first sort of incoming help second incoming help he says no Lumumba goes to the US he gets slighted there they refuse uh, to help Lumumba and then you said he goes to the Soviet Union and in the book you describe this as as sort of the nail in the coffin that. Uh, you know, like it, it, there, there's nothing he can really do to go back from that. What what yeah. makes that so? So um, Lumumba really would have preferred to get help from the United Nations, which he viewed as unsuccessfully helping him, and the United States, which he was sort of naturally inclined towards. And to give you just one bit of detail on that, when he was in D.C., he calls on the United States to send U.S. troops to Congo which was never going to happen. The United States didn't want to do that. But it really speaks to what his um, sort of orientation was if he was willing to have American boots on the ground in his country. Um, he's he would, hardly the sort of Soviet puppet that later he would be portrayed as. Um, but the United States doesn't send troops. It doesn't give him direct aid. It doesn't give him a plane. Um, and so when he returns to Congo from that trip, that's when he makes an appeal to the Soviet Union, to Nikita Khrushchev, um, the Soviet premier, and he asks for military aid because what he really wanted was to invade Katanga, that breakaway province, and bring it back into um, the central government's control. And he needed trucks and planes and, and military help to achieve that. So he sends Khrushchev a telegram, right? Yes. How does Khrushchev respond to his request? Well, I think he's um, sort of annoyed to have his bluff called because the Soviets have been, um, there's been sort of, Lumumba's asked Khrushchev to keep a close eye on this. He's been sort of playing footsie a bit, you know, keeping the Soviet option there, but nothing's been done substantively in concrete terms. And, uh, oh, sorry, the my monitor just went out. Oh, okay. I, I can still see I'm you and, sorry, and hear you. Weird, okay. I don't know what happened, but um, so- where were we? Khrushchev gets this um, appeal from Lumumba. And I think he he's probably annoyed to now have to decide, am I going to have to give this country military aid or not? Um, so he decides to give Congo sort of token military aid. Um, trucks that were already going to be destined for the UN operation in Congo as part of the Soviet contribution were reassigned to the Congolese government. Um, some planes were sent en route. Um, but in a sort of ironic twist, none of this aid, either very little or none, 
ended up arriving in Congo before Lumumba um, was overthrown. Okay. And we already previewed the fact that Eisenhower uh, insinuates that he wants Lumumba gone. However, the the CIA and Alan Dulles decides to do that. In, In between Lumumba asking for Soviet help and Eisenhower making that off the cuff remark in, in that meeting, that indirect uh, threat towards Lumumba. What what is happening in the the higher ups' minds like that? What what are the higher ups in the United States talking about uh, when Lumumba asked for the Soviet help? Yeah, so so basically, Lumumba's appeal to the Soviets was seen as an unforgivable sin in the Cold War, and Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief in Congo writes this frantic cable to headquarters in D.C., saying that the Congo is experiencing a classic communist effort to take over the government. Those are his words. And so um, you know, things move uh, quickly, but I guess also slowly in terms of the CIA gets to work on this assassination operation. Um, and, and sort of, yeah, that's the moment where everything's turned. It's no, no longer, you know, before that it was Lumumba, oh, maybe someone we can work with. We'll try and, you know, pressure him, blah, blah, blah. He's kind of unreliable, but he's not, you know, we don't like that he's um, sending, you know, telling the Soviet Union to keep an eye on Congo. But then once he, um, once he asks for military aid and once the Soviets uh, seem inclined to provide it, then that's, okay, sort of game over for Lumumba because that was... Um, the the worry was it was a ridiculous worry in my view, but the worry was that he would sort of turn the Congo, uh, you know, into push it into the Soviet bloc and allow mm. it to be dominated by Moscow. In fact, there's no reason to think he would have done that. He was you know an anti-colonial through and through who wanted to rid his country of foreign interests. Um, he was you know, more pro-American in outlook inherently, as I've discussed, but. In this sort of paranoid Cold War context, that was the fear. Yeah, I, I have an excerpt of uh, from your book that describes the perspective of the U- the U.S. government towards Lumumba that I, I think would be good to read. So you write that July 1960 was an inopportune time for Patrice Lumumba, the barely 35-year-old prime minister of the Congo, to visit Washington, D.C., His country had become independent from Belgium only on June 30th. Within days, the army had mutinied. Belgian forces had intervened without permission. A province seceded, and the UN had sent in a massive peacekeeping operation. And amid the chaos, Lumumba had made a troubling appeal to the Soviet Union, suggesting that his fledgling nation might require its help. At a National Security Council meeting just days before the Congolese leader would arrive in Washington, Alan Dulles, the pipe-smoking director of the CIA, told the room that Lumumba had been, quote, bought by the communist and was, quote, a Castro or worse. The trip would turn out to be the beginning of the end for Lumumba. So, yeah, just like them calling him a Castro and all these uh, communist accusations, it, it really made me think about like how the world would be different if the United States didn't view these nationalist struggles for independence through the lens of anti-communism. Like if they were able to see things more clearly, if the U S was when all of these things were, were happening in Africa. Yeah. I think you, you put that exactly uh, the same way I view it, which is that America sort of 
couldn't understand that Lumumba was anti-Belgian, but not anti-Western more broadly and not pro-Soviet. Um, they couldn't understand that the clearest way to understand all of his decisions were about staying in power and keeping his country um, intact and not about playing some big Cold War game. And the obverse of that is that Lumumba himself didn't quite realize that his actions were being viewed through this Cold War lens. He was at pains to repeat again and again, you know, Congo doesn't want to be part of any bloc. We're just trying to do our own thing. But that message really fell on deaf ears or was never believed. Is obviously Lumumba is aware that the the Cold War is happening, but is is he aware of the gravity of to which people's actions are being looked into during the Cold War, both in Russia and in America? Like, does he have any idea how paranoid people were during that time? Or is is he not really privy to the gravity of the situation? You know, I, that's a great question. I think I think the answer is ultimately no, that, that what uh, one factor leading to Lumumba's downfall was his failure to appreciate the extent to which Cold War paranoia dominated American thinking. Um, you know, the fault lies first with the paranoid American thinking, but, um, but he didn't, he didn't see it and therefore, um, you know, didn't act in a way that was attuned to that. Okay. So what month is it when Eisenhower gives this order, non-order to Alan Dulles? August 18th, 1960. August 18th, 1960. So how, how does that order then, or order not, whatever you want to call it, uh, how does that play out in the coming weeks and months? Yeah. So a week later, as I mentioned, there's this sort of follow-up from the president's national security advisor who reminds the CIA to get on it. And at that point, the CIA does. And um, a man named Sidney Gottlieb, who's the CIA's top chemist, is enlisted in the effort, and he's told to find a poison that can be delivered to Congo and that can be put in Lumumba's um, food or toothpaste, and it'll kill Lumumba you know, within 24 hours, and it'll look like he died of natural causes. And so yeah. the idea is there'll be you know, no American fingerprints on this operation. Um, you know, No one will know what happened or you know, who did it. And But that operation takes a little time to, to get going. And so by the time the poisons arrive in Congo, it's mid-September 1960. And Lumumba has already been fired by the president of Congo. So there's a, Lumumba's prime minister, there's a president. The president, with CIA encouragement, fires Lumumba. Lumumba says, no, you can't fire me. I fire you. And so the two top leaders have fired each other. And that's the context um, in which uh, the poison arrives. And then on September 14th, um, Lumumba and the president are both quote unquote neutralized by Mobutu of all people, the head Mm. of the army who steps in and announces he's taking power in a coup. Um, So the, the poisoning plot was sort of in a way moot by the time the poisons actually arrived because Lumumba was no longer effectively prime minister. Yeah. That that was such a weird uh 
a weird interaction in the book to to read to read about a prime minister being fired by the president and then the prime minister Lumumba turns around and is like no you're fired like you think I'm fired like you know go fuck yourself like I'm I'm just going to fire you then like I, the the it, it seems like I'm I'm trying to imagine like what that room would have been like the conversation between both of those men where it's just it, it seems almost like a a juvenile uh shouting match where it, it could just kind of like culminated in this weird outcome yeah so there was this legally questionable maneuver that the the president a man named Joseph Kasavubu used where if you read the Congolese constitution a certain way, you could argue that he had the power to remove the prime minister, but there are lots of arguments as to why he didn't actually have that. So he goes on the radio and announces that he's, he's dismissed Lumumba um, again, encouraged by both the Belgians and the CIA. And then Lumumba takes to the radio and says, I've just heard what you've all heard that I've been fired. That's in fact not true. You know, I announced that the uh, the president has you know lost the confidence of the Congolese people, and he himself was fired. And which you know was also there was no even less sort of legal justification for that. Um, but it's it sort of you know the, the in all this period there was like what the law said and the official rules, and then what actually happened. And what actually happened was driven by power and influence, and not you know scraps of paper saying you can do this or that that's yeah. the the way that events unfolded it had much more to do with who had control of the military who had control of the radio who had the backing of western diplomats that sort of thing not um rules about how things were supposed to go yeah so would this be like if the vice president fired the president in the u.s and then the president just turned around and was like you're fired and then the uh the head of Department of Defense just takes over, like something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a little different because the U.S. doesn't have a, a, a parliamentary system, and I mean, the basic problem here was that Congo, when it was when the details of the government were being designed at this conference that I mentioned, they decided to have a quote unquote head of state and a prime minister, and that was copied and pasted from the Belgian system, where the head of state was the king. And then the prime minister was the person who actually ran things. And so the king was this figurehead okay. and rarely intervened in actual politics and had, you know, over the, the decades been reduced to this ceremonial thing, um, whereas the prime minister was the person actually in charge. And so that was the case in, in Congo. Um, but you didn't have that decades of tradition that said that the, the head of state was a, a figurehead, essentially. And so there were these, all these sort of unanswered questions about what exactly was the power of the president versus the prime minister. Um, and, uh, I mean, ultimately everyone agreed at first, that, you know, the, the prime minister was indeed the more important figure. I mean, it was Lumumba traveling abroad. It was Lumumba who actually was elected by the people. Um, but because there was a sort of unanswered question about the president's role that led to this weird standoff. Hmm. So, how is Mobutu allowed, or not allowed, but how is he able to take power amidst this this clashing between 
uh, President Kasavubu and the uh, Prime Minister Lumumba? Like, what does he do to effectively, you know, make the other guys stand down? So he um, goes, he holds a press conference at a restaurant and announces on the radio that he's in charge. He says, I've neutralized both politicians. Um, his wow. first words were, in fact, this is not a coup. This is not a military coup. In fact, that's exactly what it was yeah. because the military <laughs> leader was taking power. And so he announces that um, he's in charge. They've been neutralized. And then um, you know, the real important factor, the thing he had that was decisive was he had sort of control of the military. He could tell troops where to go to, you know, not let um, Lumumba leave his house and, you know, that sort of thing. And so back to what I said earlier about sort of the rules were totally out the window. This was not, uh, there was no legal procedure for the head of the military taking power, obviously. This was just a thing he announced, said was happening, and then de facto it did happen. And over the ensuing weeks, he eventually put Lumumba under house arrest. And sort of that meant that Lumumba just couldn't even pretend to be prime minister because he he couldn't travel anywhere, he couldn't talk to anyone, etc. Do you ever think about it if if you could go back and experience one of these moments in real time that you've written about in the book, which one that would be? Cuz there's there's so many fascinating moments from this entire plot with Eisenhower and Dulles and Mobutu you know, probably making some buzzed speech from a restaurant about taking over, uh, you know, uh, the, the assassination itself, Lumumba making the speech to the King of Belgium. Do, do you think about which moment you could, if you could experience that, which one it would be? Mm, that's that's a, a fun question. I, ha- I haven't thought about that before. I mean, the writing about this, I felt like I was experiencing it. And I mean, I talked to people who who witnessed these events firsthand, and that was sort of magical to hear. Um, from them about what that was like. Uh, I mean, the, the Lumumba's speech to um, to the gathered delegates upon independence, I think, I mean, that would have been an amazing thing to watch and also, um, you know, not tragic because at that point it was still a moment of hope. It was, he was, um, you know, telling it like it is to his soon to be former overseers and and what a powerful courageous thing that was to do um but uh no i mean the it would be so tempting to 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 time travel because they're uh with a remove of 60 plus years there's a lot of great sources you can so many documents newspaper articles at the time you know newsreel footage photographs interviews with people who were there but um so many times i found myself wishing, oh, if I could only get more detail on this thing or, you know, like Devlin. So in that coup where Mobutu took power, Devlin had been meeting with Mobutu in the days before and he Mm. handed him cash and encouraged him to take over. Um, We don't know much at all about what they said during their meetings. There are a few stray cables here, um, but like to be in the room watching that happen would have been so useful uh, for history. But yeah, you know, we, we can only write... Uh, what we know from the sources. What wasn't there? There was also something else in the book about uh, a station chief in the CIA meeting with Kasavubu to point him in the direction of the Constitution, essentially planting the idea of firing Lumumba in Kasavubu's mind. Yeah, that was something that I I 
found, and I don't think anyone else had had known, I found this document in the Eisenhower Library. And on August 8th, I believe, 1960, which is early because the tide had not really turned against Lumumba at that point. Yeah. The, the outgoing station chief, the guy leaving, um, is you know meeting with Kasavubu, the president, to say goodbye. And in this meeting, he um, he suggests that Kasavubu figure out a way to fire Lumumba and reminds him of that power. Um, Kasavubu claims he didn't know about this, which he, he surely did know about that power and would eventually use it. Um, but yeah, it's an early example, I think sort of actually the earliest example of the United States um, trying to you know use nefarious methods to change Congolese politics. And yeah, I found the document. I think it was, sorry, not in the Eisenhower Library, maybe it was in the National Archives in, in Maryland. Um, but it, and it was, uh, what was interesting about it is it was a CIA document, but because it was on State Department letterhead for whatever reason, um, it was not classified and it was not in the CIA archives. It was just in the State Department's more open archives. And so wow. I stumbled upon it and, happened, and it you know, didn't say the letter CIA anywhere on there, but I happened to know that this man, Paul Springer, was the, the station chief. Station chief. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always a suggestion from the CIA. It's, it's never uh, a direct, you should do this. Um, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to run to the bathroom real quick. I'll, I'll be right back and then we'll pick up with the house arrest. Sounds good. Okay. So back to CIA espionage. So Lumumba, Mobutu is put under house arrest, or sorry, Lumumba is put under house arrest by Mobutu. Mm-hmm. And this is while the whole plan is going on, directed from Dulles to Sidney Gottlieb, the the maker of the poison. So the, they're, they're trying to figure out how to get it to Lumumba once it's made. Yeah, there's this sort of practical problem, which hadn't been a problem in August when the order was given, but now is a problem in September, uh, which was that Mabu- uh, Lumumba was no longer in power. Mobutu had taken charge. And in fact, Lumumba was under house arrest and there were uh, two concentric circles of guards around his house, um, an inner circle of UN peacekeepers to protect Lumumba and an outer circle of Congolese soldiers answering to Mobutu um, who were trying to prevent Lumumba from leaving and uh, occasionally trying to go in and arrest him. And so there was no practical way to get the poisons into Lumumba's house. And so Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, is writing these cables. I mean, they're they're almost comic, um, if it weren't so grim, looking back at them today, where he's uh, the, the, his superiors at CIA headquarters are frustrated with the lack of progress. We've delivered you this poison. These poisons. Why isn't anything happening? You know, give us an update. And he's saying, "Sorry, it's really hard. I'm really busy." Blah blah blah. And yeah. so uh, that's this sort of practical problem. He suggests other ways of killing Lumumba. He asks for a high-powered rifle to be smuggled into Congo so that Lumumba can be shot. Um, but that and and the other the poison plot. They sort of all these bizarre plans end up. Uh, fizzling and and, um, and Lumumba ends up dying you know, in an entirely different way. Do we do we know? Uh, is Devlin the one on the ground trying to give Lumumba the poison? He was trying to find someone 
who could do it for him. Okay. So when he encounters the Congolese troops and the UN troops outside of Lumumba's house and he's under constant house arrest, do we know if he's trying to bribe officers or he's trying to sneak in somehow or do reconnaissance? Like what what are his failed plans? Do we know we anything know, about that? We know that he talked to some there was someone and we don't know that person's name. There was someone who uh Devlin identified as a potential link to Lumumba to getting into Lumumba's house. Um, but then that person, uh, I believe they themselves had spent time in the United States. So they were worried that this might blow back on, on the U S which of course was the whole goal here is have no American fingerprints. Um, and so that person whose identity we still don't know to my great frustration, um, was, was seen as one potential option. He then sort of, He's talking about other things in the works. He's you know talked to a group of soldiers who are going to attack Lumumba. All these sort of fanciful ideas, and, and none of them really come to fruition. And there's sort of a debate about to what extent um, Devlin would later claim that he was trying to slow roll the operation mm. and that he totally disagreed with assassinating Lumumba. The evidence doesn't back that up. It suggests more that you know uh, he was not the most enthusiastic follower of these orders, but he also was proposing other ways of killing Lumumba. Yeah. Is there, so the hesitancy from Eisenhower to Dulles, is there any sort of hesitancy or like uh, vagueness to the order from Dulles to Devlin, or is he straight up like kill Lumumba with this poison that we're sending you? Um, it was, nothing was ever written down. The way it worked was this way, which was, uh, Sidney Gottlieb was flew to the Congo with poisons. Devlin had gotten a, a cable a few days earlier saying, "A man is going to meet you. You'll recognize this man. You know, here's the meet him in the hotel lobby. He'll look like this. He'll be holding a copy of this magazine." Um, and so they meet, and Devlin recognizes, "Oh, this is Sidney Gottlieb. I've seen him around headquarters before." Um, and that's where the message is conveyed. And Gottlieb says, okay, here's the poisons. Here's how they work. Here's to put them in Lumumba's food or toothpaste, get someone to do this for you. Lumumba will die. And um, and and then Devlin says, he professes, and I think legitimately, to be shocked by this order. He was not expecting this. Um, nothing like this had ever come to him before. And he says, where did this order come from? And he's told it came from the top, from President Eisenhower. And he would later testify about that moment to the church committee. And that mm. was this this really key um, disclosure in the investigation into this plot because it proved it was another piece of evidence linking this all the way back to Eisenhower. Have you ever spoken to to Stephen Kinzer or read his book about Sidney Gottlieb? I, I did read his book about Sidney Gottlieb and, and cited it a few times in mine. Yeah. Yeah. I... I uh... I forget if this this quote was included in the Lumumba plot, but I, I pulled it out of Poisoner in Chief because I actually spoke to God or not Gottlieb. Uh, that would be a fun conversation. I, I spoke to uh, Stephen Kinzer a couple years ago, and this is a quote about Gottlieb, just for people wondering what type of person makes poisons for the CIA. So uh, Kinzer writes. For years, Gottlieb had overseen medical experiments and, quote, special interrogation projects 
in which hundreds of people were tormented and many minds were permanently shattered. No one had ever plunged into this kind of work with more ambition or enthusiasm. So if you're if you're interested in uh, checking out another uh, like a, a, a another individual involved in CIA schemes on the the opposing side, uh, Poisoner in Chief is a, a good read for sure. Yeah, I mean Gottlieb was ethically flexible to say the least. Yeah, he seemed very good at compartment uh, compartmentalization. He, he seemed like he was really good at sort of separating the things he was good at from what was morally correct. Yeah, and and if you read Poisoner in Chief, you you learn that he post retirement he. Uh, or after retiring from the CIA, he sort of had this um, bizarre second act that, um, you know, in many ways might be seen as trying to, you know, undo the the evil he had uh, unleashed upon the world. Yeah. So to go to go back to Lumumba and the house arrest, Lumumba escapes at some point, but what, when does he start to think about the plan? for escape and, and how he's going to get out of there. Yeah. So the, the escape happens on November 27th, 1960. Um, and it's motivated that the proximate factor seems to be there's this vote at the UN, um, which entrenches the non Lumumba government. So to make a long story short, so Mobutu had taken charge and taken power in this coup. He says he's neutralizing both politicians and then he basically acts against Lumumba, puts him under house arrest, and in favor of Kasavu with the president, and sort of you know, makes him nominally still in charge. And so, uh, originally he had claimed he's being neutral and you know, not picking sides, but then he very much does pick side. And so Lumumba um, is frustrated by this: the UN sort of supporting the the Kasavubu, the president side of things. And so that's when he makes this decision, a very fateful one to escape house arrest. His goal is to go back to Stanleyville in the country's east, the city where he had come of age politically, where he had um, lots of allies and supporters, where members of his former, now former government had been regrouping. His goal is to get there and sort of then say, okay, I'm the prime minister of Congo. I happen to now be in Stanleyville. You know, we are the legitimate government. Um, so miraculously, he slips past these two rings of of troops, the UN guards and the Congolese troops. Um, it's late at night. There's a thunderstorm, uh, and he hides in the backseat of a car under the legs mm. of his servants who are going home for the day. And then uh, switches cars a few times and travels in this convoy headed for Stanleyville. Um, they end up getting caught with CIA help, I should add, um, a few days later and on December First, he's he's caught and, and flown back to the capital. How did the CIA help in Lumumba's capture? Uh, Devlin himself would admit that he worked with Mobutu to organize a search party and figure out which routes were likely and help with getting an aerial reconnaissance plane to, to find Lumumba. So there was yeah. assistance in that way. What wasn't there was a time you talk about in the book where Mobutu and Lumumba were good friends? Yeah, and then Mobutu ends up throwing Lumumba in house arrest. Are, do we know how that relationship devolved, or or is it not clear? So yeah, at the heart of this story is this real this personal betrayal because, as you said, Lumumba and Mobutu were great friends, 
um, certainly before independence, you know, in during the Leopoldville riots in 1959, they were riding on a motor scooter together around the city watching what was happening. Um, and Lumumba, you know, made Mobutu's political career, brought him into his government, appointed him head of the military. But then what starts to happen is, is a distance grows between them. Um, Mobutu uh, considers Lumumba as um, too mistrustful, too interested in keeping power to himself and not working well with others. Um, Mobutu is the one who sort of gets a reputation for playing nice with Western diplomats as opposed to Lumumba's more confrontational style. Um, And so they grow apart and Mobutu at a certain point um, in his own telling, you know, out of frustration with Lumumba and, and Kasavubu having fired each other um, decides to step in himself. But even then when he first takes power, he hasn't, he isn't fully uh, anti Lumumba and he's known as the press calls him the Hamlet of the Congo because he can't make up his mind. He's sort of one day he'll say something nice about Lumumba. The other day he'll say something nice about the president, Kasavubu. Um, but over the course of weeks and with the Americans, you know, handing him briefcases of cash and whispering in his ear, he finally makes that final break with Lumumba and puts him under house arrest. And they actually have this sort of shouting match out, you know, where Lumumba's on the balcony of his house and um, Mobutu's yelling at him from the street below. And so at that point, their friendship is you know, irreparably broken. Yeah, like a, like a breakup, someone yelling at the balcony from below. Um, is there, well, I was going to say, it, it, it seems like uh, Mobutu had some sort of weird psychological things going on. I don't know if it was a, a, a narcissistic disorder or something, but he was friends with Mobutu. He puts him in house arrest, and then after uh, Lumumba is killed, he then like he does a lot to preserve Lumumba's legacy the guy he just ordered to death which which we'll get into but just jumping around a little bit like it it seems like it's very hard to pin down how Mobutu could do that without some sort of weird psychological underpinnings yeah I mean in terms of Mobutu turning Lumumba into a national hero I think that was sort of instrumental um, not coming from any heartfelt place. Uh, as you said, he, he, Mobutu sends Lumumba to his death. Um, but then not long after, you know, builds a statue of Lumumba and claims that he's been, you know, fell victim to colonial forces or something like that. And I think what's going on there is not that he, you know, had a change of heart and regretted what he had done to his friend, but that he realized Lumumba was popular and it was useful to cloak himself in his legacy <coughs> yeah. um, for political purposes. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I mean, Mobutu, what's interesting about him is he would become this cartoonish dictator in the, you know, late sixties, seventies, eighties, up until the nineties and, and his removal from power and death um, and, and become a sort of classic narcissistic African dictator. But mm. he was a very different person in 1960. He was not yet that. He was, um, you know, indecisive, uh, skinny, quivering, nervous, um, 
you know, complained uh, to many people who met him that, um, you know, he couldn't make up his mind and that he regretted taking power. Many people thought he was on the edge of a nervous breakdown. He was losing weight. So he, he was not a, a confident, um, you know, secure dictator at that point. He was a young colonel who had taken power and professed um, somewhat legitimately, I believe, to have to regret that decision. Do we know about Mobutu specifically when he made his turning point from being this sort of shy kid slash, you know, eventual military leader into someone who is positioning himself for power? Was it that takeover or was he sort of scheming before that? I think it would be sometime after he took power. I mean, it it certainly takes a a degree of confidence to step in and take power in a military Yeah, for sure. But but he wasn't yet, I think, the decisive, cruel person he would become, which to fast forward, just seven months later, he would then send Lumumba to his death um, and, you know, sort of watch him being manhandled in front of him, uh, you know, tortured. And so there, there's clearly um, a very quick transformation that took place from this sort of uh, nervous man who still had some sympathy toward Lumumba to this sort of heartless man who would just, you know, um, be instrumental in his death. Yeah. So just to backtrack to when Lumumba is caught on the run by Mobutu and a CIA collaboration, where does Lumumba get sent? What do they do to him? How does that play out? So Lumumba is flown back to the capital. Um, he was pretty close to making it to Stanleyville um, or, or pretty close. You know, if he had just crossed another river, he would have been in friendly territory. All would have been mm. well, but he gets caught, spotted from the air and then um, you know, arrested on the ground. He's flown back to the capital, Leopoldville, and then he's thrown in a military prison. The idea being, okay, from here he can never escape. Um, it's a place uh, called Teesville that was, um, you know, some distance from the capital, and he was you know, put in in prison there. And it was thought, okay, now we we really don't have to work worry about him. But um, then some things start happening, and it turns out you do have to worry about Lumumba. Um, so the timing here is important. This is December 1960. Mm. Eisenhower um, is uh, about to leave office. Kennedy, JFK, has been elected. He's going to take power in late January 1961. And there were signs from the Kennedy camp that the U.S. would have, under Kennedy, a sort of more pro-Lumumba policy in that it might even support freeing Lumumba from prison bringing him back to power as prime minister um, because under Mobutu, the chaos had continued. You got rid of Lumumba, bad things continue to happen. Turns out Lumumba wasn't the problem. Um, And so there's this real fear on the ground in Congo that the Kennedy administration might come to office and force Lumumba to be freed and put him back in power. And Mobutu was terrified of that. That would have meant the end of his own rule. And then also Mm. Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, was terrified of that because he viewed Lumumba as this existential danger to Congo and, you know, to the United States in the context of the Cold War. Um, 
And so on January 14th, 1961, Mobutu or someone from his circle tells Devlin that he's going to send Lumumba to a province where it's certain he'll be killed. And Mm. Devlin learns this information and he does or doesn't do two things. The first is he doesn't try and talk Mobutu out of this decision. Um, He was, you know, giving him briefcases of cash regularly, advising him on all sorts of intricate matters of Congolese politics. But he he doesn't try and talk Mobutu out of this decision, which in the context of their relationship was essentially a green light, I argue. Mm. And then the second thing he does is he keeps headquarters out of the loop. So even as he's updating his CIA bosses in Washington about other twists and turns in the Congo, he deliberately doesn't tell them about the biggest news on the ground that's happening, which is that Lumumba is about to be killed. And he keeps that information to himself because he worries correctly that if he tells Washington what's about to happen, he'll be asked to put the brakes on the operation to save Lumumba's life. Because at that point, there the thinking in, in DC was, we can't have any big new decisions made until Kennedy takes power. It's a moment of transition. They're mere weeks left before JFK takes office. Big questions of policy, like what happens to Lumumba, are matters that the new administration has to decide. And so Mm. Devlin knew this. He had just had a request for more money rejected or delayed on the grounds that he had to wait. And so that's why he keeps this information to himself. And then three days later, on January 17th, 1961, um, Mobutu sends Lumumba to Katanga province, where he's killed shortly after landing. And three days after that, Kennedy takes office. Wow. Um, Do we... So Devlin, when he learns this information from Mobutu's inner circle that Mobutu is going to send him to a province where he's going to die, which ends up being Katanga, Devlin doesn't even tell Dulles in the CIA. Is is there any communication between them or, or Devlin essentially makes this decision to sit on it purely on his own? He makes the decision on his own. So on January 17th, after Lumumba has been put on the plane, Devlin writes Washington saying, by the way, I learned three days ago on January 14th about this plan. Um, but at that point, it's a, you know, it's a fait accompli. There's nothing to be done. Uh, so, and, and as I mentioned, he's updating them about other <laughs> things. So the only logical conclusion is that he deliberately sat on this information. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. The, the, such, such a moment and, a death that changes history and just the the way that an entire nation, an entire region pans out over the the following decades that this guy essentially green lights the assassination on his own. I, I, that to me is, is almost as crazy as the assassination itself that, that he was in contact with the CIA, other people in government. And then up to that moment, he's just like, you know, drinking a whiskey in his hotel room thinking like, should I let this guy die? And then for some reason he was just like, yeah, I guess like, uh, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. Yeah. I mean, there are many different things that had to happen in order for Lumumba to be killed. And you can point finger fingers correctly at, at Belgians who did stuff. And, um, you know, the Belgians were involved in the transfer you can, of course, point the finger at Mobutu, who came up with the whole idea. But <clears throat> there was this 
key American link, um, which was Devlin giving the green light without which this would not have happened. And also to back up, I mean, at every single link in the chain of events leading up to Lumumba's death, there's an American role in terms of Kasavubu, the president firing Lumumba, Americans push for that. Mobutu taking power in a coup, Americans push for that. Mobutu being supported while he was in power and a, a peace deal to bring Lumumba back to power being opposed, Americans were behind that. The capture of mm. Lumumba, an American hand, et cetera. So the broader context here is the CIA had its fingers in, in so much of the events uh, and so many of the events that, that led to Lumumba's death. But yet, as you were suggesting, it really is a case where individual decisions made by single individual people had hugely consequential decisions for history. Yeah. So when Lumumba is sent to Katanga and then he, is he held in a cell before he's driven out into the woods where you, you spoke to the hunter and the, was it the son he, that saw them? detained in a house and, and tortured. There's sort of an, an empty house that he's um, dragged into and there he's, he's, tortured by soldiers and by um, the ministers of the secessionist government of Katanga, uh, Moise Chambe, the, the president of independent Katanga, as he called himself, stained his suit with blood when he had a turn sort of slapping around Lumumba. Um, so Lumumba's final hours, he was tortured the whole flight on the way there, are this just, you know, despicable, tragic story of of torture and abuse. And he, you know, suffered up until the very end. And he's with two other people in, in yeah. his own party, like two accomplices, essentially. Two, yeah, political allies um, who had also been uh, arrested and um, put in military prison with him were the three of them were flown to Katanga and, and killed together. How, how much do we know graphically and, and verbally what was going on in the house that Lumumba was being tortured after he got off the plane? And then those moments leading up to when he was taken out to the woods and shot, like, do we know exactly what he was saying or do we know what other people were saying and doing? How specific is that record? We know quite a bit because there were so many people involved and many of them talked. There was a Belgian um, academic who, in fact, had been on the ground in Katanga at the time, um, wrote this PhD dissertation in the 80s or 90s, I forget, which was um, secret for a long time, but eventually released. And that uh, that thesis included interviews with all these people who were present in the hours before Lumumba's death. So that's a huge source that I drew on. There's also a book by a Belgian sociologist named Ludo de Witt um, called The Assassination of Lumumba, which which focuses heavily on, on the Belgian side and drew on that dissertation, um, which was also very useful. Um, so the, the the record actually is is um, in those final hours is is very thorough, and we we know a lot about the, sort of the, the gory details of Lumumba's final hours. We also know what happened to his body afterwards, which was that it was buried, exhumed, reburied, reexhumed, and then dissolved in sulfuric acid. So you know, even after death, there was a sort of desecration that took yeah. place. So he he essentially he was tortured, beaten, 
to an absolute pulp. And then the, shot. And then shot. And then the, I guess they were worried about people finding the bodies, which is why they dug it up so many times and eventually just dissolved it in exactly. acid. Exactly. There was to be no evidence. And, and for a while, it was a big mystery what happened to Lumumba. And not many people, you know, a lot of people assumed he was dead, but it wasn't clear. And the secessionist government came up with this sort of cover story where they claimed that Lumumba had been, you know, we didn't kill him. We just detained him. And then he tried to escape and some villagers killed him, which was a, a lie they made up to, um, you know, avoid uh, getting you know, flack for, for doing the actual act. Yeah. And did you say Mobutu was present at Lumumba's death when he no, got shot? Um, or he- uh what uh, Moise Chambe, who's the leader okay. of secessionist Katanga, was present at various times that night. Okay, and you, when you were in the Congo, you you said you spoke to the man who witnessed Lumumba's death. Was he aware of the gory details of everything that happened? Like, is that sort of well known Congolese history, or was he? Did he just know that? Lumumba was killed and you were sort of filling him in on like, yeah, this is what happened before and after. You know, I, I'm not sure how much he knew. What what I do know is that the thing things he said matched up with the other pieces of the record that we know. And, um, you know, I don't think this man had, you know, read the academic treatises on, on Lumumba's uh, yeah. final days and hours, but the things he said sort of matched up with that. Um, so I had every reason to to believe him. But yeah, he just witnessed the, you know, he, he was walking, he was on a hunting trip with his father. It was late at night. Uh, they were sort of in this remote clearing and then they noticed this cars turn off the road. Um, and, and then he witnessed what happened and, and he and his father hid behind an anthill. Um, they had their lanterns with them. And I mean, he, he um, just had this incredible detail of, of, of the, things he had witnessed wow you also spoke to lumumba's son and daughter right right what what was that conversation like you know i was so grateful for the chance to talk with them um because i mean at the core of this story yes it's about politics and the cold war and militaries but the core it was it's about a human a man who was a husband and father and and these children lost their father at an early age and in a particularly violent way and um, didn't even have his body. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, just, to, I can't imagine what that would have been like. So I was very um, pleased that they were willing to talk with me and share their memories. They were both young at the time. I spoke with Francois and Juliana um, who were, uh, you know, I forget exactly, but maybe Francois was 10 with his father died and Juliana was five, let's say, something like that. And so maybe a little older than that. But they, and they were young, but old enough to have memories of their time with their father. And so um, what they were really useful for was naturally not the, you know, big political picture or dates or, you know, broader context, but just details about what it was like and how they, you know, Juliana told me about um, – playing on the balcony of her house and looking out and seeing these troops surrounding the house and wondering why she told me about, you know, fond memories she had playing with his father or her father or, you know, missing him when he was traveling out of town, that sort of thing. Um, so, 
yeah, it, it was an honor to meet them. And I was, I was thrilled that they were willing to take the time to share their memories. And it, it um, helped me add that human element to the story um, to remind readers that this wasn't just a politician and a you know, political figure, but, but a, a father. Yeah. I, and I, I think the, the human element is, is what makes it such a compelling story on top of the actual events, because I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself when I'm reading about historical plots and, 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 and things that have happened in the past, I forget that these are real people dealing with emotions and they lose their temper. They drink, they get married, they go through divorces that like messed up things happen to them. Great things happen to them. And when you're reading about someone who lived 50, a hundred, a thousand years ago, you can sort of just see them as a caricature of the person from history and not as an actual person. So I, th- I think the human elements that you incorporated throughout the story allow me as the reader to to not forget that we're dealing with actual people with mothers and fathers and, and sons and daughters and that, you know, like you shouldn't just be thinking about the assassination itself, but what is it like growing up with a father that got assassinated by the CIA? Like that that is just a, an incredibly traumatic experience on its own. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that you felt that way because that was very much a goal to like tell the the big picture political story and all the details of that, but also, you know, keep his humanity front and center throughout. Yeah. How do you think the Congo and Africa as a whole would be different today if Lumumba was not assassinated and he was given the the help that he was looking for to restore the Congo? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's at some level, it's sort of just impossible, and we're all guessing. But I do have a have an answer to that, which is that um, I don't think things would have been hunky-dory for the Congo and everything would have been just fine because there were a lot of structural problems. You had the lack of preparation for independence, all the you know um, various, the, the Belgian misdeeds that, uh, you know, lack of institutions, et cetera, et cetera, that Congo was going to be a hard country to govern um, no matter what happened. Massive mm. country in terms of its size, extremely diverse, uh, et cetera. So it was, it was you know, whoever was going to be in charge, it was going to be hard. However, the actual history that Congo did experience, namely 30 plus years of dictatorial rule under Mobutu that ended in a massive civil war that killed more people than anything since World War II, that history was so bad that almost any alternative course would have been better. So, um, you know, would it have been Denmark and Central Africa? Probably not. Could it have had a fate that many other African countries had after independence of, you know, um, still a lot of poverty, imperfect democracy, but, you know, making progress and free of mass violence? Um, That, I think, is sort of the most likely outcome. We'll never know, but all we know is that what happened was so bad that almost any alternative future would have been better. And, I mean, the most important thing is sort of the Congolese were never given a chance to even develop along their own lines to you know have true sovereignty and make their own decisions. There was outside intervention, namely by the CIA, from from you know, very early on. 
Do you think we'll ever see true superpowers or, or spheres of influence coming from Africa? Because like what when you're reading when you're reading the story, you can't help but think about a lot of African history as a whole. And then this is something that uh, countries in Central America deal with as well, is that the superpowers like the United States, UK, Russia, they're sort of coming into these places with natural resources and dividing them up. And then essentially, like it's in your best interest to keep the countries with natural resources weakened to an extent where you can have control and ex- uh, exert your powers on that place. D- do you think that Africa will ever get to a point um, where we'll see more autonomous, democratic uh, rule, even to the point of uh, having some countries become major superpowers? Um, yeah, I think we are already at the point where many countries in Africa are absolutely democratic and and autonomous. Are they superpowers? No, um, but you know. Will Nigeria grow in importance as its population and economy grow? I'm sure it will. Um, what your question really gets me thinking about is sort of the people, a lot of people talk about the new Cold War and sort of the geopolitical rivalry between the United States and the, and the West on one hand and China slash Russia on the other. And I think some of that is real and and China and Russia are trying to extend their influence in the developing world, including in, in Africa. But I also think the lesson of my book, in a way, is to not imagine that your geopolitical rival is 10 feet tall and, and perfectly capable. In fact, they're often consumed with their own domestic troubles and they're less uh, malevolent and uh, omnipresent than you may imagine. And the same is true today in Africa, I think, that, you know, for instance, the United States has 20-something military bases in Africa. China has one and Russia has zero. So it's important to keep in mind the you know, real level of Chinese and, and Russian influence in Africa. There's a lot of hyperventilation about it, but I think um, you know, there's, it's, it's important to be uh, put it in perspective. And then the other thing that is relevant today is um, you know, the, the Congo under Lumumba didn't want to be involved in our geopolitical rivalry. It just wanted to stay intact, develop along its own lines, achieve true independence. And and the United States never let it do that. It was meddling from early on. It thought, the United States thought it really mattered who was in power in the Congo, in which way the country was officially oriented, and so on. And the lesson there is that countries in what was then called the third world today is called the developing world. They're just trying to make it on their own. They're concerned with their own politics, their own people, their own well-being. And we don't need to force them into our rival. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is kind of ridiculous when, when you have all these developing countries around the world trying to become more and more autonomous and, and, and and gain momentum and then the the superpowers around the world especially the united states are over looking over their uh country from down above and they're like all right you know how can we make this struggle advantageous for us or how, how can we sort of scheme to 
use this country that is like barely a country and, and, and use it to our own benefit. And, and I guess, you know, it's a story as old as superpowers have been in existence, but I, I don't like, do you, are, does, does the story about Lumumba make you skeptical about the future of how, uh, the Congo and, and and Africa as a whole will pan out versus the this like sort of globalist fight for power. Do, do you see countries starting to mind their own business more? Like, h- how do you see the future unfolding over the next like 50, 100 years? I mean, there are a lot of really positive trends in Africa. If you take a long term view, looking at economic development, looking at democratization, things are moving in the right direction. So I think the the caveat there and the the implication of the of the episode I describe in my book is to um you know encourage those trends slash get out of the way and let them happen because once you start making the cold war mistake of backing authoritarian leaders who are officially pro-american and um seem to buy you short-term stability. Once you make that mistake, you're undermining things for the long term. And that was the error that America made in the Congo by supporting Mobutu. I mean, the the sort of most important two things that resulted from the period I write about in my book are one, the death of Lumumba, which means you got rid of this viable popular politician who represented a wide swath of Congolese public opinion. And two, the installation of Mobutu as dictator, which means you had an unrepresentative leader who um, had no real political base, was fabulously corrupt, and would you know rule repressively for decades until the bottom fell out of his regime. So the mistake there was, but, but at every point, America thought, oh, the thing to do now that will be good in Cold War terms and good for stability is to support Mobutu rather than not support him. And that sort of worked in this narrow Cold War logic for a while, but the Congolese people paid the price for it during those decades of misrule and most tragically during the civil wars that ravaged Congo after Mobutu's regime collapsed. So um, that's a mistake to not be repeated. So after Lumumba gets assassinated and and we spoke about Mobutu uplifting Lumumba's legacy and and he becomes this martyr figure in the Congo. Is there anything that the mythologized version of Lumumba has gotten consistently wrong over the years? Like, do do you see anything about the myth of Lumumba where you're like, yeah, that, you know, that's nice, but that's not really what he was like, or that's not really what went down. Yeah. um, I mean, there's sort of, there are a few different, competing mythologies about Lumumba. So in the Western slash American slash Belgian view at the time, the myth about Lumumba was that he was uh, a totally unstable leader who was poised to turn Congo into a Soviet satellite state. That is a, you know, basically a conspiracy theory in my view that has no real grounding in evidence. Um, Then there's the sort of Mobutu version of the Lumumba myth, which was that, um, uh, you know, I, Mobutu, had nothing to do with his death, and uh, Lumumba was, you know, cut down by colonial forces, which, I mean, that part was true to a certain extent. Um, but then the more powerful in the long-term myth was, I think, the sort of 
leftist adoption of Lumumba as this icon. Um, and I mean, there was some truth to that Lumumba was a dyed in the wool anti-colonial activist who wanted independence and who opposed Belgian meddling. Um, but, you know, he was not a leftist on domestic policy so far as I can tell by any evidence. I mean, he, he was opposed to the nationalization of the mines and private companies. Um, as I mentioned, he invited in, he called on the United States to send American troops to Congo. He signed the Congo's entire mineral and hydroelectric resources over to an American entrepreneur. Mm. Um, so, you know, he, but the, the left, like Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre would later, you know, uh, write an introduction to a book collecting Lumumba's speeches. So there became this idea that he was this, um, you know, figure of the left. I think it's more accurate to see him as, as, uh, simply an African nationalist, a, a Congolese independence activist, a, you know, um, successful politician, um, rather than some, uh, you know, leftist thinker, which is sort of what happened after his death, I'd argue. What are your thoughts on the CIA as an organization? Because you've spent so many years with this story, and I, I'd i be curious to see how you view them. Like, do you see them as an organization that performs necessary espionage that regularly oversteps in brutal fashion? Do you see the CIA as a whole as just something that we'd be better off without? Like, what, what do you think of the, the CIA? I mean, what's really important to keep in mind here is this was like the Wild West days of the CIA under Alan mm. Dulles. Um, there was zero oversight from Congress and almost zero oversight from the White House. And so this was an extremely powerful organization that, you know, basically answered to no one. Alan Dulles did whatever he wanted. Um, and and that was the context in which this only a plot like this could only have really developed in an era like that. Yeah. Um, that changed. Uh, there was the Bay of Pigs fiasco, which um, caused Alan Dulles to eventually you know, be forced into retirement. Um, then there was the church committee, which investigated the CIA excesses. So I think over the, you know, and Watergate and sort of over the course of the seventies, the sixties and seventies, the CIA was reined in. And, and when I write about it in 1960, that may in fact be the sort of height of its um, influence and, and maliciousness. Um, so, that's one thing. And then I think it's also really important to distinguish between two things that the CIA does. There's intelligence collection and analysis, and then there's covert action. And those are very different things. And, you know, snooping and gathering information is one thing, um, but the sort of Cold War meddling and trying to um, tip events in foreign countries to to America's advantage in ways that undermine democracy. That was an entirely different thing together. Um, so, I mean, and, and so much to have a true opinion on the CIA today, you'd need to know what it was actually up to everywhere. And we're just not ever, eventually, hopefully we'll know that, but we, we don't know now. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I also think it's important that like the CIA of 1960 is an entirely different organization from the CIA of today. 
Um, my main concern, frankly, is that uh, I think things should be declassified, that there's still mm. stuff from 1960, 1961 during my research that was either totally classified, you couldn't get the document, or you know, striped with redactions. And I just think that's ridiculous. It's um, It's been 63 years since Lumumba died. There's literally nothing about that that should be a secret at this point. And so, um, you know, I've written an op-ed calling on the U.S. government to finally open the Congo files and um, and come clean about what's happened. Um, but the, the declassification process in the U.S. government is, is totally dysfunctional and underfunded, unfortunately. Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. If And I suspect if you were to ask most people, do you think it's a good idea that we have an organization that collects intelligence and shares intelligence uh, both uh, from and to other countries, so we have a better idea of what's you know going on in the underworld of global politics and global maneuvering. I suspect most people would say, yeah, it's probably a good idea we have intelligence collection. And then when it comes to the covert action, it seems like a lot of things get you know lost or just never never declassified. There's just like so many things shrouded in mystery. And I agree that once something becomes uh, no longer a current operation, why, you know, what what is this mechanism of hiding going to do for building trust with the American people and building trust with the rest of the globe, which having trust would make it easier to operate. So, yeah. I and I mean, also at just at a broader level, you know, if the United States is a liberal democracy, then a thing it should do is be open about its past and be accountable. And so just almost for sort of self-identity purposes, I think there's a good case to be made that um, just be open about it. You know, we're, we're, we're a confident enough country that unlike, you know, the Soviet Union or China, we can speak honestly about our past and, you know, have the facts out in the open and and be be confident that in the you know long arc of history we'll be judged favorably. And, and so um yeah. Yeah. I, I thought we could end off with an excerpt from a letter that Lumumba wrote to his wife Pauline from mm-hmm. prison. Uh I believe this was the second time. Uh so Lumumba writes, without dignity there is no freedom Without justice, there is no dignity, and without independence, there are no free men. Cruelty, insults, and torture can never force me to ask for mercy, because I prefer to die with head high, with indestructible faith and profound belief in the destiny of our country, than to live in humility and renounce the principles which are sacred to me. The day will come when history will speak, but it will not be the history which will be taught in Brussels, Paris, Washington, or the United Nations. It will be the history which will be taught in the countries which have won freedom from colonialism and its puppets. So, again, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the the podcast and and share the the history of what's happened. That you know, ninety nine percent of which I I was not aware before reading the story. So, again, I, I think what you're doing is an unbelievable service to sharing this part of history and this conversation was a blast and it flew by which i i just looked up like four minutes ago and i was like holy shit it's it's 150 so that's always a good sign of a good conversation thank you so much Zach, for having me it was um it's it's a pleasure to, to talk about this
where's the best place for people to number one purchase the book and two just to keep up with your work and follow what you're doing you can buy the book at your local bookstore at amazon wherever you you get your books it'll be there um there's an audiobook an ebook version um and then you can go to my website which is just stewardareed.com my my name.com and um and find me there but yeah thanks again for having me yeah thank you so much Stuart. 